back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Bushido Code and the debut of their new track, Harvest, which will be on The Ronin, a record coming out on Upstate Records April 16th. Check it out. Bushido Code features members from North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Mike Ledette, the singer, was in a band called Nourish the Flame, which had a split EP on Spook City with Debt Before Dishonor back in the day. Derek and Sean are from Pennsylvania. Derek played in Fury of Five. Derek was going to shows back in the CC days. This is one of these kind of unsung bands that are just trying to pop their heads out. So check them out April 16th, the track. It was Harvest, the records. Ronan, you can just shit from Upstate Records, and I'm sure you'll hear this track again on the podcast. My deepest sympathy, condolences to the friends and family of Izzy from Riot Stairs and Discourse. We'll be posting the GoFundMe link on the show notes, which you can find at TIAC Podcast. Be sure to look out for the Eddie Leeway GoFundMe as well. Eddie is about to undergo chemotherapy for stage 3 lung cancer, and our thoughts and prayers are with him as well. I say it every week on here, but I do write back to everybody who hits me up about the episodes. Thanks everybody who enjoyed the Lewis one. Really had a good time with it, and I'm glad to hear a lot of new listeners were checking out the podcast. I'll say it one more time. Make sure to go to tihcpodcast.com for all the show notes. There's a lot of pictures, links, and extra stuff for all of our guests. Go to the iTunes and rate, review, tell your friends. It's been a lot of fun with the different episodes we've done so far. I can't believe we're almost at 30. And I actually have a special first-time-ever video episode, which you'll also be able to hear on the regular podcast apps, but we're going to do a video for episode 30. I'm not going to say who the guest is yet. But it's definitely a special one indeed. Thank you for the support so far. And I hope that you guys continue throughout this entire year because we have an insane lineup of guests coming up in the near future. Speaking of which, our guest today is Aaron Earl Hurd. Now, when we jump into the actual conversation, you're going to hear me a little more hyped up than I usually am in the intro. But I think Aaron and I were pretty, you know, coffeeed up for a, a Sunday morning, or I was coffeeed up. I think he was getting ready to smoke a little spliff or something. But we were a little ramped up when we jumped into this one, so I'm a little bit more exuberant than I normally am in the beginning of a conversation with a guest. But let it be clear that Aaron is absolutely one of the most charismatic figures in recent memory in hardcore in general, and has become one of the standard bearers for Philadelphia hardcore. And someone who I've watched grow into a courageous man who's willing to stand up, not only carry the flag for Philadelphia, but set a standard. And I was really happy to have him on the show. Our conversation really touches on a lot of things I think is on a lot of people's mind. And his perspective is not only unique to his experiences, but I think that a lot of you listening will be able to relate. And it was a really fun conversation. And especially after the Lewis one, I wanted to see how people react to having two separate members of a band back-to-back week one and a week two. So without further ado, here's Aaron Earl Hurd from Jesus Peace and Nothing. Obviously, I'm still doing all this stuff from recording, editing, all these things I do by myself. I knew this episode was not sounding exactly perfect. But with my limited skills and limited amount of time to get this out, I put out the best version of what I could. After hearing some of my good friends 
and their critique saying that the quality of the voice, specifically my side, was far too low. I reached out to Wyatt Oberholster, and he went in and touched some of this up. So, for those of you listening now, you are now listening to the Wyatt version, where I sound a lot better than what I did before he touched it. You can find Wyatt at Wyatt Oberholster, which is O-B-E-R-H-O-L-Z-E-R. Instagram. You can also go to WyattOberholster.com and you can email him at WyattOberholster at Gmail. He does a lot of really great things for the Philadelphia Hardcore Center in general. He runs an awesome studio in Southwest Philadelphia and it came through in a clutch situation for me and I really appreciate it. So enjoy this conversation now in version two. Thank you. We're talking to Aaron Earl Hurd, the motherfucker who is the new face of Philadelphia fucking hardcore. In the last 20 years, there's been a serious need of a charismatic figure that can both represent the old school style of a hard dancing front man who literally controls the crowd the minute he gets on the mic. One of these presents in the hardcore scene that it just began beaming with light the minute he started Jesus Beast. But for me, I just remember Aaron being one of these younger folks that came out of nowhere with like all this energy and positivity, even though he wasn't exactly from our scene. I've watched this man grow to become literally the face of what Philadelphia hardcore is. He's managed to travel the world with Jesus Peace. He now plays bass in one of the most, I don't know, interesting bands ever come from Philadelphia. And we have him on the show. Here we go. Aaron, thank you for being on this hardcore podcast. What's happening, Joe? Thanks for having me, man. So, like all things, we need to start at the very beginning. And I'd like to know what your household was like. What was the music that you were first exposed to as a child? And let's let's get into it. All right. So, I am the youngest of four brothers. Uh, Took a lot of shit. Coming up as the weird one, of course. Uh, my oldest brother, he's like a Philly nigga, like through and through. You know what I mean? So he was always his own dude. And I have like a brother named Kenneth, who's like the athletic dude, you know, sports and all that shit. And then uh, I got a brother named Chauncey, who's a little older than me. He's the fucking man, but he's also like a Philly nigga straight up. So like uh, I have this mixture of suburbanness and Philadelphia-ness in my body. I was born in the city, but my mom moved me up into the burbs pretty fast because she didn't really want me to do what my brothers were doing <laughs> and, like, have the education and shit that my brothers had. And, uh, you know, I thank her for that. And just chilling around the house and being in that environment allowed me to develop in ways that I probably wouldn't have developed uh, being in the city because I was, like, an outside kid most of the time. I was like, all right, just go outside and play. Like, just go do something. So, like, I actually didn't really listen to music for a long time, man. And my music, uh, like, the furthest my music stretched was, like, Saturday mornings cleaning with my mom. She'd be bumping, like, Neo Soul shit, like, Sade, fucking Flowetry, all kinds of shit like that. And I love that stuff. I still love that shit to this day. Like, that's primarily what I listen to. Uh, But it wasn't until about middle school or so that I started hearing and seeing these rock videos that I was like, yeah, this is pretty fucking cool, man. But 
I had to kind of keep that in because I didn't feel like getting fucked with from my three brothers. Like, ah, oh, white boy, what the fuck you listening to? That kind of shit. You know what I mean? So I was just like on my 50 cent shit for the most part because I just didn't feel like hearing it all the time until I found Block Party and saw another like black dude ripping guitar and singing and shit. And I was like, yeah, suck it. Like, <laughs> suck my dick. <laughs> so something that uh, a previous guest has said on our podcast, which I've kind of co-opted and used because it's the best ex- explanation, is that when, well, when inner city youth are given access and exposure, that's where development and, uh, you know, they can grow. And so mm-hmm. your mother obviously saw what was going on in Philly for your older brothers and yeah. choosing the path of trying to give you better access and exposure to different things definitely exactly you in a different way now for me mm-hmm. when i think of when i think of what you just said i think of mike brown for punishment whose older brother john yeah. was through and through corner boy you know uh, yeah. ox, literally like i'm talking reddit margaret and orthodox out there on mm-hmm. the block and here's mike brown on a skateboard with dudes being like yeah. oh what's gonna do a white boy shit today oh you <laughs> you know like it's a, yo it's literally like, same shit <laughs> so Kind of just so that way, and, and you know, this is the this is the great paradigm of our time where there's a giant group of humans who are young and white who want to have an understanding of the black experience, and actually they love extolling the virtues of how they know about this black experience in America. But for yeah, me, yeah, it's annoying. <laughs> well, it's super annoying because it's like, look, man, you know, like you've always had the the you've always had the actual access and exposure to this wider birth and seeing it in Mike and my boy Lacey and all the guys from Frankfurt hardcore where they yeah. had to walk this line. We're like, yo, I like this other kind of music. I like skateboarding. I like, you know, at the time it was called Japanimation. They liked what was yeah. considered. Now I grew as I said, I grew up in Frankfurt. So there's like white things and black things. And it was a very, yeah. sketchy, <laughs> it was very sketchy. If you're a white ball who was in the black things. Yeah, exactly. Versa, if you're a black kid, Oh, what you doing that white boy shit for? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like, so you were even encountering that in the suburbs, or do you think because of the suburbs were you able to kind of stretch a little further? You think? Yeah, I was definitely able to stretch further, but it was very much still apparent because uh, there's a very uh, huge pack mentality in the burbs because there's not many black people up there, so we all knew each other. It was all people who moved up from the city to live in the subsidized housing up there. So there was like this village of fucking like 40, 50 kids in that motherfucker. You know what I mean? So like, I'd be kicking it with my black friends and shit, getting called a fucking weirdo all the time for wearing vans and, you know, all kinds of dumb shit like that. And then, uh, you know, I'd go home <laughs> and still get it from my brothers. And then I'd go and I would just kick it with everybody else because I was like, I don't feel like fucking taking this abuse. You know what I mean? Like, I'd rather just be kicking it, you know? It's it, it was it's a weird it's a super weird dynamic, but at the end of the day, it's just assimilation, uh, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can turn into a bad thing fast. So, you know. Now, because you're younger um, than I, was your exposure via the internet like a, or was it like what was it like the media of the time that gave you the music exposure? Was it something from like a YouTube? MTV two? Oh, <laughs> yeah, like. Ran like I was just up all night. I was always like an insomniac kind of kid, and uh, I would just be watching like Headbangers Ball and random shit like that, and watching these videos and being like, "Yo, this shit's kind of crazy." But I didn't know that it was so accessible at a local level, you know. 
I didn't realize that or find that out until I was like almost all the way through high school. You know what I mean? About like sophomore year, sophomore, junior year. What was the turning point? Like, did you, was it a flyer? Was it a person in the high school? Um, well, being around Lansdale, of course, Lansdale, there's like, <laughs> there's, you know, all the small hardcore scene that was there too, but it was underneath everything going on. It wasn't so out front. So if you didn't know people doing it, it kind of didn't cross your path, but I would see small shows happening at like churches and stuff. And I would pop in and out like, Oh, my brother's right, so playing were, this so show. You were, so you were aware of that mm-hmm. even at that age. Okay, cool, cool. I guess let me dial this down then. So you're um, one of the things that happens when we talk about it when people talk about high school time. Did you have a group of like weirdo friends in high school, or, or were you the kind of person that had? I knew these people from this table. I knew this person from this table, and you were able. I was to- a tables kid. I was bouncing. That's kind of why I am as social as I am. Like uh, being younger, I moved around a, like a shit ton, so I was used okay. to just talking to people that I didn't know. I would just pop up, and be like, "What's up? How's it going?" <laughs> you know what I mean? So. When it came down to it, like being in high school where I was up in Penn Ridge, like being a black kid there, that's pretty treacherous sometimes. You know what I mean? So I was busting people's asses for the racist shit. Then I was also looking out for the kids who were getting bullied all the time and like fucking going at the prep kids for fucking with like my friends who were weird because I was always weird, you know. But I was really aggressive because I had three older brothers from the city. You know what I mean? yeah, so you were getting you were getting it downhill, so you could take it a lot harder. I get exactly. And I was like, "Fuck that, y'all don't have to take that shit." You know what I mean? So I was just busting people's asses because I didn't necessarily have my mom there through high school to be like, "Yo, stop getting in trouble." I was just getting in trouble, anyways. You know what I mean? But not like getting in trouble for fun. I would just, yo, I'll just do it. You know what I mean? Like, yo, you sit back. I'll take care of this for you real quick. You know what I mean? Just don't worry about it. That's something that even resonates with you today. You're definitely a leader, charismatic, Mm -hmm. and and you definitely have an empathy as to more than just what your direct friend group is. Now, when we're talking about racism shit in the suburbs, I only know, like, the city racism. And so, like, I've always seen two kinds of people from the suburbs. Straight up. They live in the suburbs, but they're like, might as well, they want to be redneck as they can get. Yeah. Or these, or these like suburbanites whose parents feel dignified to be like, well, you know, we're, we're progressive. And I've always believed that the progressive parents still have subtly racist or accidentally racist children. Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, now, that kind of shit happened to me all the time. Would you say that you were dealing more with the, the ignorant, accidental racism or you were dealing more with the blatantly i'd rather be in Pennsylvania than the suburbs of philadelphia racism i'd say that i dealt with you know a good amount of both of it because i was again i was always confrontational whether it was fighting or just talking you know i would get at it so you know my friends would say some dumb shit and i would i would want to know why they said that dumb shit or i'd be at their house and their parents would slip up and say some shit to me or get drunk or say some stupid shit to me you know what i mean or just even in school, I was dealing with it, the Pennsylvania kids, like the John Deere cats, we, we would call them, John Deere boys. And <laughs> I'm still yeah. at the John Deere boys. I like, that. I like that. Like them cats, they were not shy about their racism. You know what I mean? So yeah, I would be walking. Ignorant, out, ignorant. I get like fruit thrown at me and shit. Like sometimes, like even kids, like I had a cat in class that I had some girl talk to a teacher like, oh, I really got to talk to you. I had her get her out the room and I just beat bull up in the middle of the class because he told me like, 
Halloween was nigger hunting night and he's shooting any nigger that steps foot on his property. Like it was that blatant. That's, you know what I mean? That's blatant. Very blatant. <laughs> so What's crazy for you is too, and I, I I say this like you were still engaged in in in, in a time when the, the black culture had not completely shut off the N-word. Exactly. So that was floating around left and right. And not the and not the hard R, but even the A was just still yeah, there. like what's so, up? Like you're my nigga, blah blah blah. Yeah, and, and and you your generation still had to deal with like, do I want to take that or is that exactly? Like- Dude, that's such a funny thing. You just brought that up because it's still something today that like people say it, and because of being in the burbs, like it doesn't take something with me. It's like yeah, whatever. Like I kn- probably know how they grew up or whatever, but at the same time. As like, you know, modern society has present like uh, progressed and, you know, things become like, oh, well, why can't I do this? And people just stopped understanding why they were saying these things and doing these things and just doing it because they thought it was cool. You know what I mean? And that is kind of when I had to step in and be like, all right, y'all, like, let's let's cut this shit out. You know what I mean? Like, I guess a big part of it was just understanding the world a lot more and understanding it's more than just this person likes rap music and it adds to a bigger problem. You know what I mean? I'll tell you, I'll tell you my story with it. So growing up, we grew up with the poorest people. Yeah. That word, that word was in everyone's lexicon Uh and it it was white, white, black. Everyone said it. Freaking everybody. Asian niggas, everybody. (laughs) But if you hit the R, it was hands. Exactly. Immediately. It was hands and, and you had to be ready for it. Like if mm-hmm. someone said it, ooh, that's fighting. And it was it was like hockey style. Drop the gloves in the street, mm-hmm. in the sidewalk, in the hallway, fire Joe, power, you're getting I punched one of my friends while he was driving one time because he got cut off and yelled nigger. I just socked him what <laughs> but that's what it was, is like but there was a weird in the late eighties and early nineties, there was a weird pass on the A, but a hard fight on the R. Mm-hmm. Thin line. One day, and in one day I was at work. Many years later, like probably like eight years ago, maybe nine mm-hmm. years ago, and I was in an argument with someone, and I'm like, and I used the A. I'm like, come on, nigga, you know what, blah blah blah. And this old guy who's the hardest cement mason. He's now retired. His name's John Mike. He was a military officer. He was mm-hmm. also a Christian who played drums in a church band and sang. But he's one of our so he was shredding. <laughs> Yo, his, he has a he has a black belt of multiple martial arts. His yeah. kids are weapons masters. And John Mike said, "Excuse me." What'd you say, young man? And I said that, and he's like, come on, man, you're better than that. He's like, I know yeah. you're better than that. And getting schooled by John Mike made me reaffirm, like, him, you know, like, and he's like, look, I don't let Mike Young's sons, I got three sons, and I got a daughter, I don't let them say it. I want to hear that out of you. You're Fair better enough. than that. And that was the first time I was checked as a grown man by, like, an older black man who I respected and, like, was, like, a leader yeah. in our cement mason world. And I'm like, ooh, I got to think about that word. You know, like, yeah. it was like, but it actually took until the Eagles – celebration i'm out with carter and uh-huh. bob wilson and sonny yeah and they made a joke they're like oh if everyone's singing a mick mill song you can sing the whole thing i'm like what's up with the whole thing they're like oh well you can't say the end i'm like in rap music and like, yeah, yeah, you're not like, and that was like dude i had to let it write it down like okay duly noted yeah and heard unless it's, <laughs> it's detailed concrete lyrics we're not allowed us <laughs> which is crazy to me but it's an interesting thing because your generation was the last that had a really deal with that pass. And actually, um, I wonder if that hurt and helped you kind of grow to have to stand up for yourself in understanding the, 
complex reality of having white friends that are just ignorant to what that word means to you, but yeah. not being able to cut them completely off. Right. That's that was the the good thing about being in the burbs. Because these are all kids that I, I knew from being a child. You know what I mean? And I'd seen grow up and I'd see them saying the things that they were saying. And I'd have a better understanding. I had the context of their lives. You know what I mean? So I'm like, these dudes just don't know shit. So a lot of my time was spent, like the people who were close to me, I would educate them and let them know, like, hey, this is why that's not okay. Or like, hey, this is this is why, because a lot of the times, like, there's a lot of teachable moments that people miss. You know what I mean? And be it might not it might not be your responsibility to teach them, but at the same time, it kind of is if we all want to live in harmony. You know what I mean? As someone who is listening who may think of why we well we diverted all of this, what Aaron just said applies to conversations he has struck up with me, like, yo, old head, what's going on here? <laughs> and, and it's and it's one of the most beautiful things about your personality yeah. and your ability to understand that we're at the level of friendship where we can have this conversation. And I want to exactly everybody live, like this is how me and you communicate on the phone in person. And I've always looked to you as someone that's wow, this kid's and I and it's not a kid is a pejorative. They understand. I guess you. I don't. I'm not I mean, like. I'm not yeah, a kid. <laughs> but like this kid has such a good soul and confidence within himself that he's able to communicate to me and be like, "Yo, old head, can we get you on this page instead of this one?" And I and I respect you so much for doing that because I think some people go, "Oh, that's Joe. I don't want to have that conversation." And you've always, you've always done it with me. So I, it's amazing to hear even at a young age you were doing that. Yeah. I was always told that I had an old soul as a young man, you know? Well, there's a depth, there's a depth to you. Like you're, I've never seen, yeah, you might say, yo, what's up with it and keep it soft and and congenial, but you've also been able to get deep man quick in a quick immediate conversation and say something super serious. And it's, it's a part of who you are. Right. Now going back to the, the exposure to the music, Obviously, MTV2 was like the branch where they were like MTV1 was for the pop music. Right. Two was like Headbangers Ball and the videos that would come. Mm-hmm. And so was there, uh, you know, obviously, I think there was like that mall. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with the setup of the, like where you would find music. Did you find mm-hmm. music physically or did you find music digitally first to check out? So <clears throat> I guess. It would have to be digitally because, I mean, anything that I was finding was either via TV or the Internet. Uh, It didn't become physical for a long time because I just didn't have any fucking money. So I wasn't like going to buy CDs and stuff like that. It wasn't until I met, honestly, like a little bit before I started kicking it with Dave Heck more often that I didn't even like I started picking up records and stuff. And when I started liking hardcore more and like, yeah, just genuinely hardcore, like older metal and like some of like the rock shit. I started getting into records and picking up records and just like, you know, going to record shops and crate digging and stuff like that. Just cause it also, also tied into like crate digging with hip hop and stuff. Cause I have three older brothers. So all that early hip hop shit was in there too, but they had tapes and CDs, but that was it. You know what I mean? I had their tapes and CDs. I personally didn't go out and find these things for a while, you know? And I think that that was just like uh, not knowing where to find it. You know, not knowing where I should be looking. But when I found it, I, I found it and I found it hard. <laughs> now when it, I would I would wonder you're a high school, you're a middle school into high school kid. What was your yeah. first run in with the people like Dave Hack and the Lansdale hardcore world? 
Um, I'd say my first running with those dudes, like, like just like a brush or when I was actually like kicking it, kicking it. No, nah, like, like your first exposure. And then like when it was kind of like, all right, I'm going to start coming around these folks. Uh, so my first exposure, I guess, was like, I think I had just stumbled into some like church on main street that was like by like uh mano main street or some dumb shit like that. And there was a show in the basement and this one girl's brother was playing and their shit wasn't like just like straight hardcore, but it was, uh, you know, it was tinged hardcore. Of course uh, there was like some rock aspects and then there was like some metal bands, but it was always like an eclectic mix. You know what I mean? So I got like a good crash course with a lot of shit that was happening, but I wouldn't say that it necessarily grabbed me just yet because like I said, I was more of an outside kid. I was going to play sports. I was going to go throw rocks at a house or eggs at people like shit like that. You know what I mean? Uh, so that was my entire life. <laughs> throw some rocks right away. You know what I mean? But uh, no, like diving into it though, that wasn't until like I had, fallen into like the internet myspace world of like weird metal bands and like uh like metalcore bands and then uh falling into Perkasy, quaker town lansdale shows because i was like i want to go see these bands and like bands like this this is cool that people who aren't celebrities are doing this i want to know more about this shit so as soon as i found it i was like well this is what i'm gonna go blow my money on if i have any or if i don't have money i'd still pull up and be like hanging out outside just because i wanted to be around like-minded people you know that's a a theme of mine since i was a kid i'd rather just go kick it with the like-minded people that are like me as opposed to trying to fit my way into something you know what i mean nice. and I, i've seen you do that with our shows like yeah i'm just here to kick it i'm like get your ass inside get in there you know like you yeah. want to see you want your people to be with your people you don't want to see like that dollar amount be the reason why they can't hang exactly uh, so it wasn't until, you know, I think my, one of my first like shows where it really clicked with me, it was at the boiled over church in Quaker town, like uh, across from the morning star over by the, yeah. the skate park there. I think like might've been force feds last show. And it was, um, I think wrong answer had played maybe mother mercy. I don't know, but I remember seeing everybody moshing and they weren't moshing like, all the kids around me were watching because I always watched way fucking harder again because I had three brothers from the city that I fought consistently. So I, I came to these shows and people were smashing each other. And I was like, all right, hell yeah. Like no one's mad about it. This is what's up. Like this is where I want to be. <laughs> and I started, you know, coming to more shows like that, like anything that was happening in Percocy or surrounding areas, like up in Wilkes-Barre, like I would just jump in the car with like Zook and Dan White and them and Mikey Bifalco. Like they were all, friends of mine from high school that that were putting me onto this shit like mikey showed me bad brains and dead kennedys and like a bunch of black like punk bands with black people in them really at like social studies class one time and i was like oh shit black people are doing this too <laughs> I was like, this is tight like this is fucking cool so then like i just fell down that path of like more punk inspired shit and then i found it in my own backyard and though i didn't really necessarily click with the people there like a lot of Doylestown cats like I didn't see eye to eye with them you know what I mean but I felt comfortable there you know what I mean because it wasn't like I couldn't handle myself so it was never a fear of somebody fucking with me it was more so like uh I just feel all right with myself and all right with this weird new aggression that was entered into my life as like an angsty teen and as like a young adult I had a place that 
all that shit was already there. You know what I mean? I'd like to ask you a question that is really specific with you because the way you brought it up. Hit me. So you, you, you saw the head, you saw the headbangers ball stuff and you saw some live shows mm-hmm. as, as a, as a person of color, did it resonate and get you even more energized that there were people that looked like you involved in the music or were you already in regardless if like, what, like how do you feel seeing whatever? So I was already kind of in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I liked the sound of something that sounded scary and something that made you feel something that I was already feeling all the time. You know what I mean? Like it, it just synced up with me. So I already had an interest in it. It just really put the nail in the coffin that I wouldn't be the only fucking person doing this. You know what I mean? Or like, now juxtapose that with now you being such a centrifugal figure in not only Philadelphia and Pennsylvania hardcore, uh Jesus peace and stays a national international stage. Yeah. How cool Worldwide, you baby. To, you get to be, you get to be the face that younger people of color can see and be. Holy shit! There's more more of that in this music, like me. To be honest, Joe, that sentiment is what's kept me doing it for as long as I have. Because there's a lot that comes along with doing what I do, and you know this. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot having to deal with people you don't necessarily want to deal with, or having to be looked at away or perceived away. You know what I mean? Like that shit's all so fucking annoying. But the thing that keeps me coming back is that I get to meet people who are just like me as a kid that are like mind blown. Like, Oh shit. Like there's more to my world. Like I'm, I'm able to open up, you know, some doors for people that usually wouldn't have those doors opened or usually wouldn't feel comfortable stepping into a space like this because everybody's upbringing wasn't like mine. You know what I mean? Like people see this shit, even to this day, like showing it to like my cousins and my uncles and stuff. And they're just like, what the, what the fuck? (laughs) That goes goes back to that uh, Instagram video from SL, SLB sounds. Like that's one of my favorite Instagrams, but like seeing Jesus beast and him going, what the hell? Oh my God. And there it is, Jesus pieces hardcore. <laughs> but the comments were super supportive from people yeah. of color, like, oh my God, look at these motherfuckers out there getting it, you know? Yeah, like- dude, right? <laughs> dude, it's that that right there. I fucking love that because it it's very much this thing where everyone thinks this is just white shit. Everything is white shit. Like those videos also circulated on Facebook super hard. And and one, I, I, I get blown up with notifications still for this day. And uh, those comments are a war zone, <laughs> straight up, because it's mad black people Facebook who are crazy. It's so fucking crazy, but it's just mad Facebook black people who don't crazy. fuck with it. And then there's there's black Twitter and black Facebook, which is a, its own world. Like hell yeah, big time. <laughs> you'll, see, you'll see some shit that would not be said on white Twitter and be good. The black yeah. Facebook and black Twitter is like, now nah, we're good with this, and you're just like, yeah. damn. <laughs> Dude, black Twitter. I still to this to this day, they're the tastemakers for Twitter. Straight yeah. up, the they're comedy, the fucking tastemakers. The comedy and the memes, like, <laughs> to this day. But in, in, in circulating back, it's interesting because obviously, like the the most privileged aspect of being white in a hardcore punk world, yeah. is that we take for granted that our people are the representatives, right? And I think that it, it's worth mentioning that it's cool to see you 
go from being someone in the suburbs who was told, oh, that's a white thing. And then you see something that resonates and it brings you full picture. And now right. you have this picture. Now you're that now you're one of the many faces that we have ushering mm-hmm. a new generation, you know? I'm straight up honored, really. Like like I said, it's sometimes the only reason I'm still doing this shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> what get let's get into let's get into some of the things that you brought into like we grew up a very similar way. We would sit outside yeah. And start fights, or we were playing baseball. Yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with Bridget Pratt, uh-huh. there were some shifty old white dudes that would come down the neighborhood at dark white times, like uh-huh. nighttime, like with the lights are out, and drive by the neighborhood. And for a while, we didn't know. And then one of the dads, like, oh yeah, them guys are trying to pick up like young dudes. And like, for what? We didn't know. Like, we're the other. Yeah, guys. like, what? <laughs> and then when we found out they're trying to do some shit, we're like, you're going to fuck these dudes up. So we started putting one of our homies out on the corner. Yeah, bait him. Smash their back window. Get the fuck out of here, you fucking piece of shit. And that happened two, three times. And then it was like, all right, you got to take this up the block. So yeah. then if anybody knows about Bridge and Pratt, in them four, the four, the only place in the world where there's a cemetery, one in each corner, is right there at Frankfurt Avenue in Sheltonham. Yeah. So I'm a young headbanger, and we're all hanging out doing Dungeons & Dragons. Dudes are sipping 40s. And we would yeah. sit at the cemetery wall and throw rocks at cars, hoping they would come in and try to chase us in the cemetery. And bust their ass. You said, no, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, like, yo, fuck playing Freedom and Spring. You want to see people chase us around because they ain't going to catch yeah. us. We know everything. Exactly. So I get that because at the same time, we're fucking with metal. I started going to hardcore shows, and I remember being some of my dudes being like, I'm not going to the show. We're going to hang in the cemetery. There's no rocks tonight. I'm like, I'm good, but I'm just trying to go to a show. Like, what the fuck? You stayed on it. <laughs> what if we did something else but throw rocks? <laughs> Yo, that's that was my my home team. Started getting into the basement, smoking weed, yeah. doing jam music. And they were like, but they were still down the fuck with throw rocks. But they're like, nah, I ain't going to the show. I just want to throw some rocks. And smoke. <laughs> Dude, simple. Good old bad boys just throwing yeah, some rocks. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, that's it, man. That's all we're into, bro. Throwing rocks at cars and shit. <laughs> you said throw rocks. I had to bring it up. Um, that was great. So, Mikey Falfalco in high school, is he yeah. any different than he is now? Absolutely not. He's always been exactly the person that he is. Like, just every chick's into him. He's magically ripped somehow. Dude, I remember, I still remember this fucking day. It was like, it had to be junior or fucking freshman year, not freshman, but junior or senior year, he came in one year and he was just like a triangle straight up, just like. <laughs> and I was like Small dudes get swelled quick, man. Dude, it's crazy. He was a wrestler then too, so he was yeah, just exactly. like curling dudes up and shit, but like, he wasn't so, like he was always very punk. I'm talking like plaid pants, mohawk kind of shit. Like he's always been super punk. And my thing with punk kids started in Lansdale when I was still in middle school because my homeboy Sparky was getting his ass beat all the time for being a punk kid. And I was like, fuck that. And I just started, me and him would bang. Like, I'd be fighting niggas for him. You know what I mean? And I, I just, like, liked him. Even then, I thought, like, Rancid was, like, screamo, like, kill your mom music. But I fucked with him because he was so different. You know what I mean? And one of my best friends was a punk kid. And that's the only reason why I knew him. You know what I mean? So when I, I got to Penn Ridge, I linked with the punk kids, too, because I'm like, you guys are like me because I was skating the whole time, too. So it was like one and the same thing at the end of the day. Like I had, you know, Tony Hawk Pro Skater put me onto a bunch of shit. So I had known about the punk world and I knew that these guys are like skaters. So I was like, well, we're, we're one of the like I had an understanding that this was an alternative thing. 
You know what I mean? And I knew that there was a community around it. I just didn't know how to access said community. So I was just like, anybody that I knew was kind of in these things, I would talk to and be friends with. So Mikey, me and him clicked because he was a weirdo. He was doing pranks and shit all the time, like teachers. And I was a little asshole. So I was playing pranks on the teachers too. You know what I mean? So we just kind of clicked, literally. Now, when you talk about the violence of like brothers and getting your ass kicked, yeah. That's a huge thing that's kind of going away from America is like the little kid fights that, you know, when you're, we were young, so we were fighting early, but it yeah. makes going to a hardcore show where someone's trying to punch you not be scary, but exhilarating. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> and that was actually one of the first times I saw you. Like, I might have saw you at the door paying to get in, but it was actually seeing, like, you know, your first time you see someone at a hardcore show, yeah. you either see them because you talk to them. Or you see them in the pit and seeing you being a fucking mo- like could be you're a fucking monster. I'm like, all right, where's this kid come from? Like, <laughs> dude, I still remember one of the first times I noticed you because I, you know, I heard people talk about you and stuff, and I had seen the the Gangland episode or whatever the fuck. But I remember being up in like uh, it was that weird fucking Sellersville VFW venue. Yeah. And it was that nail show in the back, like, yeah, like outdoors, but indoors because everyone put like boards on the side thing. You know what I mean? And I was wearing like some some nutty ass shit, like like gray skinnies and like some blue shoes and like a fucking baseball tee. But I was pitting hard as shit. And I remember you stopping and being like, what the fuck? Like. <laughs> 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 You were going at people's necks from the get from the get. And it was like, all right, this kid's playing on some other shit, man. Like and I love totally it different color even... palette, just like like a highlighter. Yeah. Well, it was like a it's it's one of the coolest things to see in a young kid. Cause there's that young, like for us, it was like, all right, we're transitioning from push pitting and heavy metal moshing in the hardcore. Yeah. But that was a different time. So your young exposure wasn't like, let me put my toe in the water you're like the dude who ran off the diving board like fuck you yeah you're running shit and i'm like look at this little motherfucker running shit like <laughs> but that's i live for that i love the kid yeah. that wants to run the pit and that was like that was like all right we got a we got a new we got a new we got a new floor champion here it's fucking right. cool to see you know <laughs> now now how soon in this whole thing did you think about playing music oh man uh I think, like, as soon as I heard people screaming at the end of the day, I was like, yo, this is so tight. <laughs> like, this, I remember listening just being like, this is kind of scary, but this is so fucking tight. And I didn't start trying. Like, I was trying to do vocals, like, most of the time through high school on my free time. Like, but I just, I wasn't a loud person. I didn't project my voice almost ever. I talked under my breath all the time. Unless it, it got buck and I started yelling at somebody like, what's up? Like, just get fucking hyped up. But other than that, I was like, you know, kind of more, way more reserved. Like I was, I would talk to people. I would go be myself, but I wasn't yelling and screaming. I wasn't super loud and fucking doing all this extra shit so much until later on in my life. Uh, but learning vocals was so hard to me because I just didn't understand projecting your voice, you know? So I just yeah. didn't get into it until much later in life and, not so much much later in life, but towards like my senior year is when it finally clicked and I was able to, you know, project and make a sound that I was happy with. And, you know, I didn't, I think I had like, 
a couple friends that were into it, like Dan White specifically. I remember we had like a drama class together, some stupid shit. And he showed me like a, it was a TUI, I believe, video. <laughs> and I was like, yo, this is fucking hard as shit. <laughs> it's like, this is fucking tight. You know what I mean? And from there, like you could tell that was also very city based too. And I was like, all right, so this kind of resonates with, you know, the kind of upbringing that I, I'm around too. And uh, I think I started deciding like, hey man, like maybe there is a place for you in this. And it's not just like some tight pants weirdos or some old punk dudes. Like this is still happening, you know? And uh, I linked up with some kids up around that area who were just making like basement jams. Like one kid just knew way too much about recording. So he was just like writing these like metal songs and I just wanted to do vocals. So I would just go with his house and like record all these random songs with him, like off the rip. And uh, I think we ended up playing like one or two shows, two shows. Our first show was uh, at this dude's barn in like Dublin, PA. I'm sure you know that fucking barn. It, a lot of bands play there. We ended up playing with like our first show was at some big hardcore show and we were so out of place. But I was like, fuck it, let's get it. And I remember, I'll never forget this show, not just because it was like my first show ever, but I'll never forget it because I was singing and because the muscles in my throat paws were not ready for that. These two literally stiffed up and cramped up on me and my jaw got stuck like that. <laughs> and I was trying to sing and it was the first thing that's ever happened to me. Like I, I didn't even know that that was fucking possible. You know, you never really think about the muscles in your neck and stuff like that oh, when yeah. it comes to stuff like this. I'm going to fuck your whole brain up now. Please do. <laughs> in, 2000, in 2001, Punisher yeah. played a one-off show that Integrity did as Integrity 2000. And you taught me this stretch. You taught yes. me this stretch. behind, Like, we were at Underground Arts, and you told me, it was like, this is the Dwid stretch. And I still do that stretch today, even if I'm not singing. I do just in my house because I'm way more aware of how fucking tense your neck is exactly. after so doing I'll that. The, I'll tell the story for the show. So... We're playing a show with Integrity, and somehow Damien or one of them put the Punishment merch near Integrity so we could, because we were like huge Integrity marks. They tried to kick it. <laughs> this is where my brain is. I'm like, I, I'm looking at Dwight, he's making this weird face. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm warming up my voice. And I'm like, can you actually show me? And he takes his chin and pushes it out and tenses the outer muscles of your neck. And he's like, and then I push sound through my voice because I want my muscles to open up. He's like, it's just like a fight, a boxer before, you know, he warms up. I'm warming up. And I'm like, I was so mind blown that there's levels. So when you said the right. next thing, I'm like, that's why he doesn't do it because his neck would cramp. Yeah, dude. It, I never even thought about the labor that you go through live and doing that. It was just like I was used to doing studio stuff. Yeah. And I was like, all right, let's do this take or like, let's double these up or whatever, just because that was my first experience doing it. And to this day, that shit will, I'll never forget that because that neck pain was the craziest shit I've ever felt in my life. Like, it was more definitive than like the first time you get head for the first time or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, I thought about it for days. Like, yo, I hope that never fucking happens to my neck ever again. <laughs> like, this is horrible. Uh, so, yeah, that that was like my first, that was when I started getting into it, you know, like that's, I mean, from the, from the rip, I was picking myself apart, trying to do it and trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, but it wasn't until I started doing it and I finally jumped into the water that it clicked and I had done like 
two metal bands around there just floating around the burbs. And one of them, I was actually like going around and playing and playing in Jersey and playing up in like Allentown a bunch. And that was a lot of fun. I remember it felt like every time we try to book you, things didn't work out. Yeah. I remember we were supposed to pay that Rose funeral show. <laughs> yeah. And that's like one of these things where, so, so initially at first it was just vocals. You weren't thinking about playing instruments at that time, were you? No. I mean, like, I'd be air guitar and shit. Cause like I said, like watching Jimi Hendrix and like Kiki Ulrich from Block Party and shit, I was always like, yo, that's so cool. Like, I wish I could do that. But when you want to learn an instrument, everyone around you that plays instruments makes you think it's the hardest fucking thing in the world to learn and do. You know what I mean? Or at least that's how it was for me. You know, anyone who played guitar wanted to be this guitarist, like huge guitarist guy was always like, oh, this takes a lot of work. But I pick up on shit quick, you know? And I just didn't have the confidence in myself to do it for a long time until I picked up a bass one day. Or like I started learning like chords on like a, on like an acoustic guitar. And then I played this shit out of a ukulele for a couple of years, just like learning. Cause I knew like four strings easy, you know, like if I can get good at this, it's like a good step up into doing something else. So I would play that all the time. And then I picked up a bass and I was going to play bass in this band called Pawns with like some like country ass dudes. And like one other black dude who kind of like helped me out with learning vocals, this dude, Big Rob, he was an animal. He had some of the craziest vocals I'd ever heard straight up. And uh, I just didn't understand it. And at the time I, I was like edge, I wasn't doing anything. He's like, you gotta drink beer. <laughs> it's like, fuck you pussy. I'm not drinking beer. <laughs> Big Rob, man, he was on some shit. <laughs> he was all do it, dude. I, I had no idea. It's like, no, don't drink beer and do vocals. It doesn't work. You'll throw up. It sucks. <laughs> Human Furnace from Ringworm would straight up drink beer while they were playing and spit like in the air. And he's the only dude I've seen with a lit cigarette singing. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> he's called the Human Furnace for a reason. Like, the <laughs> fucking dude alive. Dude, I remember um, hearing that his name was Human Furnace for the first time. And I was like, like his mom named him that or what? <laughs> I started calling him Hume Fern, like that's my man's or yeah. something. Like, yeah, that's my uh, man, Hume Fern. Touring with them was one of the greatest things we ever did because we learned, like, what grown men do on a tour. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, Ringworm, Ringworm, we, I booked a tour with Punishment Ringworm when I was 22 years old and toured with them. Yeah. And it, you're like, you know when, like, there's a cool, like, dude that you, like, look, like, what's he doing? Yeah. It was like, what's what's Furnace doing right now? Like, <laughs> what's like, he up what's to? He up to? That's, like, that's what we told with Terror. I'm like, what's Scott doing right now? I'm going to go fuck with Scott. <laughs> yeah, like, the only, like, we wanted to be around Frank because Frank was great. Frank Three Guns, my boy. But uh, Furnace was always an enigma and, like, the shit he would say and do. And, like, yeah. would, like, slick his hair and, like, sometimes, like, spit beer into his hand and pull his hair through his hand. And we're just like... Dude, this is amazing. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was cool. It's, there's something weird uh, about the translation of, like, band people who are just at a level of weirdness that you can't really, like, explain. And, like, those video game basement kids from, like, the 90s and, and the early 2000s who are just weird in their own ways. But they're, they're still people, but they're, they're just weird. You know, you get to learn love people like that. You know what I mean? Well, that's, that's a huge thing that people are made up of in hardcore is yeah. this we're, we're intrinsically offset from the general path of boredom for the right. most part They're like the lifers and i've and growing into this thing i realized the people that still ain't around 
that's because they can kind of get back into the regular everyday school of fish. Yeah. And they never felt out of place. Like, well, this is my people. Yeah. <laughs> I am not who I am right now at work. I'm a different right. human. I'm yeah, I agree. Dude, I get through my eight hours, then I'm who I am. Mm-hmm. But the real hardcore people, like the human, like whether it's a human furnace or a Mikey Balfalco, yourself, Lewis, all are on some other shit. And I think <laughs> be on some other sh- you have to be on some other shit. And yeah. I always wonder, and this is like the fucked up thing, and I, and I always I try to diss Bob Wilson when he wants an episode. Yeah, you got it's it. Like, Bob is like such a such a sports such a sport mark that it makes me uncomfortable because I know nothing. I like know really so little about sports. Right. That I'm always like, what the fuck is he such a regular ass like crazy hardcore punk like loves and lives hardcore. But then sports is his twitch, where he's like, "Yeah, I love this shit." Yeah. But, then if I, but if I show him some anime shit, he looks at me like, "Ugh." Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, Juice, Ju- you met Juice is one of the yeah. Ones. Juice is cool as shit, man. Like, but like, when he was at my house, he's like, "Your YouTube and your internet is not my internet." He's like, "I don't even know. How do you know this exists? Why are you looking at this?" Like, he was upset. <laughs> Like I showed him, I showed him um, this Kakuguro uh, Netflix anime shit. He's like, yeah, the gambling joint, huh? Yeah, with that John, yeah. and you're just like, yeah. <laughs> he watched twenty minutes. He's like, look, man, I- I'm never gonna see anything like this again. Like this is not for me. Yeah, but to me, I'm like, this is shit. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, re- I relate heavily to that. We're like, so with music. I, I was um high school was not gonna do good for me be, and it wasn't it wasn't academic, it was yeah. behavior. My behavior was atrocious because I had I grew up wa- loving hockey and yeah. if someone had something to say, we were fighting and we were fighting On right it. there. Grab the shirt, punch them, and either I punch them more or they punch me more. So my access to high school was limited and eventually to the point where I had to go to my second year, I had to go to Frankfurt High School. Yeah, because I played soccer, I was like at least okay to be in the soccer, like good enough to be on the soccer team. But they had charters at this time, so I picked music. Yeah, and I'd already studied music, and I was actually lucky being old enough that our grade school gave us the opportunity to learn a lot about music in general. Yeah, and I was in mentally gifted program in grade school, so I was exposed to like a lot of music theory. So I always get mad when someone's like, you know. It does take a lot of hard work to be very good at an instrument. However, music is made for anyone to learn. So mm-hmm. the instruments are all basically set up the same way. Exactly. Piano, piano, bass, guitar, all that stuff is set up in this in this scale of from the high tone, you know, the, the high tone. It's got the same language, end. yeah. And, and so you could pick up an instrument and um, intrinsically, like dudes like Mike Brown and Mike Mig. You could create an instrument, and these motherfuckers will figure out within a week how to write a write a song. You mm-hmm. like write a whole record sometimes with an instrument that we just created because it's intrinsically human. The instrument, and I've always found that very crazy that we think about like humans as a species in our entire timeline. We always find ways to make music, whether it's like water play. Like, there's so many beautiful, crazy historical instruments that. You know, in, in every culture, and I'm always mind blown that it's something that humans are drawn to. Is figuring out a way to make devices that create music. So I, when I I really agree with what you're saying, like 
some people cap it up to be like, you got to be a Rhodes Scholar to play guitar. Right. I'm going to tell you, some of the dumbest motherfuckers I know <laughs> when it comes to music, because it's something intrinsic in human nature. Right. Now, where where does the first meeting or any meeting of some of the what would be Jesus Peace members where you come? Does it come later or does it start coming as you're playing in them bands? It starts coming as I'm playing these bands. Actually, Dave uh, used to play in a band called Frontlines, and I would go see his band all the play. I really liked his band. I would go trash people to his band straight up. And, uh, you know, my band would play with his band, but I hated his friend group. I hated his friend group, dog. <laughs> and honestly, I hated him, too. I hated everybody from Allentown, like, deep. So, like, I just... We didn't click for so long, and there was just this weird divide between people who were like-minded, just out of like stupid shit or like their friends getting drunk and doing stupid. But I was always one that was popping off and fighting or like knocking kids out of shows. So like a lot of them didn't fuck with me; they would fuck with my friends. And uh, going back to the earlier theme, I hate when people fuck with my friends. You know what I mean? So I was always fighting their friends, and it just was a stupid divide for so long, and then we all kind of realized like, yeah, we're too old for this shit. It doesn't really make sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? To be fair, Dave has a really punchable face. <laughs> <laughs> I just say that it took a while for me to like come around to Dave. Yeah. You know, like he ha there's a thing about Dave where he just got, I think he's on the spectrum. So he doesn't talk like a normal human. He's like, he's an only child. That's all. Oh, never mind. Now it makes everything. <laughs> The whole world is centered Actually, on what Dave was. <laughs> I think, I don't know if he's an only child. He may have a sister, but I think it was mostly, like, he's, like, a, the young one, so it was him growing and, up, and, and she was out, you know sense. what I mean? So, yeah, he's just a mountain kid who's, like, by himself a lot. So, like, it took that, me. Did you go up to that club near him, the one that in Whitehall? Club, I remember we used to play it. It was, like, right off the uh, the PA exit. You would go up what the, the fuck is that and... called? It was called Planet Trog at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would go to Planet Trog all the time. That okay, so they still and that was and I remember in the late nineties that started having shows and then one day they were over hardcore shows and then they started being like the center for like all that metalcore that I know the name means that the like there's a metalcore that you are involved with at that time where mm -hmm. you know what the band sounds like. Yeah, I just organize if the name or the logo looks like that. Oh, that sounds like that. Yeah, I mean, it was spot on, though, because everybody was doing the same thing for so long. <laughs> it's cool because it was cool because you have a wider berth of early experience into that world, which is what I was getting at. Mm -hmm. So you saw hardcore shit like legit DIY church stuff. You saw, you know, nails and things like that. But you were also openly exposed at a young age to that world. So you have a foot in each world so you have a better respect for it than like someone mm -hmm. like me where I saw it come up and I'm like, ah, oh, that's more like for younger kids stuff. Yeah. Because I was a younger kid at the time. Because it, it is at the end of the day. It's definitely geared towards younger cats. You know, a lot of the shit is very like young bullshit. Like lyrically, all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? And you know, I think at some point I just started feeling that and I was like, this is kind of ass. Like I don't really want to be kicking it with these fools like that. You know what I mean? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, like, uh, as a guest on shows, most of our older guests would cite, like, a Black Sabbath or something. Mm -hmm. And then, like, I had someone recently, like, well, I got into, and it was, like, something more modern. 
yeah. made me think like, okay, that's where the next generation was exposed to, you know? Right. And so, but in the, what would later happen with Jesus piece is your presence in both scenes, I think gave a lot of weight to being able to have a growth. And we'll get into that, but I just wanted to bring it up now. So it makes sense later when we talk about it. Yeah, it, it was, it honestly was the best thing that probably could have happened for our style of music too. You know, just like not even outside of me, but, you know, John also had bands back then like that. Like I remember one of my old bands and John's old band would play all the time. We would just borrow all their shit. Like he knew me because we were coming to borrow their shit. <laughs> well, shout, out, shout out to John, who was the dude after Dave, who I didn't like the most in Jesus Peace. Till I found out John hates Anthony the most. And now Dave's right <laughs> up there, one of my favorite people in Jesus Peace. <laughs> John is the most normal dude that you'll ever fucking come across. It's so crazy to be in a band with like straight up four weirdos. And then it's just blue collar John. He's like, I'm going to go fix apartment units while you guys are bitching about something stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, because we had Lewis on the podcast, where, where was your first interaction with Lewis? Oh man. I think the first time me and Lou like locked eyes and we're like, yo, like, there were two shows and I can't remember which one came first. One of them, we were both stage diving at some weird Tiger Jaw show at some college up in like, I don't even fucking know where up North. Lehigh, was it the Lehigh show or something? I think so. Something like that. Like we got college or something, but I was, we were both stage diving. We both knew that we probably shouldn't be stage diving this hard at a show like this, but we were just like, fuck it. <laughs> kind of thing. You know what I mean? And then the other time I saw him at uh golden tea house, I think. It was either Weekend Nacho Show or something or like Sex Prisoner, one of those like grindier bands. And I was like, I know that guy. We both were just kind of like, what's up kind of thing. And that was really the end of it. Uh, It wasn't until, you know, JP started forming that we became like friends, friends. You know what I mean? Uh, Now, now it's cool that you brought up this West Philly thing because I brought up to him. Yeah. There was this whole element of West Philly where they're like, we're not like the Philly hardcore show shows. I hate them fools. I'm not going to front. But then they're going to be like, we're going to protect people of color and marginalized groups. But then they would grab y'all and stop you from moshing and be like, we need to protect you guys. And And we're trying to protect you. (laughs) And you're like, you're like, uh, you're protecting me from doing what I want to do. What the fuck? Yo, I never really got down with them cats. Like even when Mikey first started coming to the city, he was over there in the punk shit. And I'm like, Yo, like you shouldn't really that's that shit's ass low key. Like not I mean they're all creative and it's great, but like I had an experience over there where I had to go upside somebody's shit and they called the fucking cops on me. And from there I was like, I don't trust none of them niggas. They had like Ruben call me, the the village elder. Mm. <laughs> I was like no no, man. no no dis no disrespect to Ruben. I love Ruben. But at the same time, it's like Ruben has people legitimately thinking he's like like from the city and that world and it's like i like ruben as a person uh, but he didn't come up from our world i know and that he is the king of their world so yeah. they go to ruben to come to you and when i heard about this I, I bob loves basements bob will go to see a show in a fucking refrigerator box me too enough lo- i did my time like i did <laughs> We were stabbing squatter dogs. We were fighting with them. And yeah. at the same times, when we were beating up Nazis, they were on our team. 
the minute they didn't like something we're doing, they were calling the cops on us. And I'm, and it's the same. It's crazy as it's thirty years later. It's the same tactics. They're mm-hmm. anti-cop. They're they're pro this. They're anti this. They don't got hands, and they always go to the cops. And yeah. they do all these whack rules. But what I found to be interesting is they were able to like solicit younger folks to the people they wanted to see expose their culture mm-hmm. and then prohibit them from exp- expressing themselves. Right. And yeah, it's, it's been weird. always a weird thing. And it's like the nature of DIY, I think that you saw best is in that church world where you brought up. And that's something that I came from. Like I actually, because of my mother with heavy metal and booking shows, I was exposed to giant rock concerts before I ever went to my first legit DIY thing. So it was reverse. Yeah. And a lot of people who I bring on the show, I ask, like, did you ever, did you actually ever see a big concert until you were playing in bands or no? Uh, I, the only, like the first big concert I ever saw, I was like, well out of high school. I, yeah. it had to be like 2013 or something. I went to go see the last Tribe Called Quest show at Madison oh, Square Garden. Yeah. And it was a yeah. part of the, the Yeezus tour. So I was like, oh, yeah. what the, f- this is fucking crazy. <laughs> but it was like, I was used to small shit. So like, either way it was going to be crazy, but that shit blew my fucking mind, dog. Well, it's like for me, I my mother had taken and you know my mother and subsequent boyfriends had taken yeah. me to so many rock concerts and heavy metal thrash concerts, like yeah. that hardcore music and the punk, the most DIY. Yeah, it seemed so different that I was excited, like they're gonna do something here. But yeah. in our local in our local scene on uh, Pratt Street at Pratt and Castor was a church where like like you said about. There was some rock shit. There was some not so hardcore shit. And mm-hmm. we had the same thing going on. It was just in like 94, 95 that that was happening. Right. So it's cool to see at the lowest levels that that still kind of exposure exists even in the suburbs. Right. Now, winding this whole Jesus Peace formation up for me, where, where how do you see the formation of Jesus Peace? Who said what? Who asked what? How did the band form? Uh, okay. <clears throat> From the top, I was in California. And I moved out there for a little bit. And uh, this is probably the first time me and Dave had like a, like a conversation conversation. And he had been on tour, like driving for some like warp tour type band. And uh, they had played uh, the observatory or some shit like that. in like Orange County, I don't fucking know where it's at, but I just went. Cause I was like, I'm up here living with Kira and like Oxnard. I don't fucking know anyone here. I was like, I'm just going to kick it with some like Pennsylvania heads real quick. And me and Dave were talking that day, like, yeah, I think I'm going to move home soon. I definitely want to do a band. He's like, yeah, I was thinking about doing a band too, you know, and we chopped it up a little bit, but that was like it until like much later when I came back, like 2015, I started getting like cemented into the city a little more. And he's like, yo, me and Lewis have been jamming some shit. Like you should check it out. And then that's really how it came down to it. Like when it comes to JP, like, I always, I always say that that's David Lewis's shit. Like they started that shit for sure. You know what I mean? But John got added in, like he was just kind of like helping them jam and then, you know, ended up staying because John had held a pay as well. And uh, Lewis was just like a punk, uh, just like Allentown punk drummer, had like a black metal band that he was drumming for and doing vocals in like, but he's just this animal fucking drummer. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they uh they all came together anthony basically was just like i'm playing bass for your band now and then he was Worst in <laughs> <Jesus Christ. laughs> you know i don't necessarily 
I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> but, sir, the, I love Anthony. The weakest link. <laughs> I fucking love that fool. Anthony is like, when it comes to like um, stupid band stuff, Anthony half the time is like the dude who has my back. You know what I mean? And he like, yeah, so like, you're like, you're like politically like, I don't like you, but you, you back me. So fuck this guy. <laughs> fuck with you, bro. No, Anthony, keep, keep making bad decisions and stay on Aaron's but, good side. Outside of the band, though, Joe, like me and Anthony, we had known each other before that, too, because I was dipping down into Delco and going to like myself, my enemy shows and shit like that, moshing hard and fucking dodging punches from the Green Brothers and shit. <laughs> so it was like I knew him from down there and he would come up north sometimes to some shows and like the Stan and Crosscheck would play together all the time and I would go see Crosscheck. So me and Anthony have known each other for a long, long time. So by the time he was in the band, we were already cool. You know what I mean? Like I just, I don't know. Ever since he was in the band, I, it's been great. Like, I've always had, like, a backup singer. You know what I mean? Like, it's helped me out tremendously. But he's along with, along he's a shitty Trash little brother I never asked for. With Trash <laughs> Bob Wilson, I always like to take shots at Anthony. It's my favorite thing. Yeah, man. I mean, it's kind of like, at this point, it's, it's your job is like the elder to bust on everybody's balls. <laughs> yeah, knock everyone down a couple pegs, you know. But no, nah, Anthony's my man. I, I'm riding for him. Now, thinking about the the genesis of the band, yeah. what we're going to go back to is that for those people who are not regionally based, Jesus Beats is a band from Philadelphia. But the the way that Philadelphia and the suburbs that we're talking about works is like the crowd that would be first, the first big fans of Knock Loose before they would become like this giant American thing. Yeah. These kids are from what I call like the the – upside down hardcore they like <laughs> they know about the terrors but they're more into these heavier metal stuff mm-hmm. and they're just outside it's not that they don't fuck with hardcore it's that they're also into and i like i'm gonna use these names but don't don't nitpick me because it's it is what it is like that acacia strain white chapel motionless, motionless and white type stuff that's yeah. the shit. That's the agnostic front for them that's the sick of it all for these younger kids i'll go ahead and say that I just don't know we, enough to say, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I would yeah. say is those bands. Most listen why is when we're mall metal, I'd say. But the Casey Strange shit, that's what I was like, the hard moss shit. Like, early Casey Strange shows were, like, dangerous. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> like, dangerous. I, I know it seems like if, if, a, if there's a girl and she's on the internet uh-huh. and she's, like, a metal person and uh-huh. she's insanely attractive, she, like, will definitely post motionless and white stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't hear till I literally didn't hear till this summer what they actually sound like. And How surprised were you? <laughs> there's, there's 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 layers to that band that just makes me go like, holy shit! And I remember there was a time when a friend of mine who's on the show, Tim, he was booking a tour, and there was a problem with the in in ear, in ear monitors yeah. and they wouldn't play it to me that was like why would they play but then i hear all the shit going on with their music and i'm like yeah this is some wild shit like it's yeah <laughs> they got a lot of layers for sure they got a lot of layers and like they're like a big presentation kind of band yeah. um but there's all this shit that reminds me of stuff like they're like a if mall metal took some of the formula that cradle of filth put together as far as like their music writing style yeah and a quick change in part it's not really something that I listen to a lot of demons and wizards and like crazy metal shit, but motion light is a little lost on me. But yeah. what I was alliterating for the crowd is that 
you can't disparage these kids and think, well, you're not a hardcore band. You're not a hardcore kid, so fuck you. Because they looked very similar. They moshed, but they were just a separate parent path. Jesus huh? Peace, when you came out, because of all the personalities in the band, had equal footing in both of those crowds immediately. Exactly. That's a really unique thing. Because a lot of times you're from that world, like the Knock Loose was, and you had to come over and via this, the opposite. Sometimes you're from that world, but you're like, man, I, I wish these young kids would check this shit out. Right. And I feel like that was a very important, interesting way that a band like you guys would start because you were able to be versatile and playing. I mean, you guys literally played mad smaller shows with Knock Loose before they became this giant thing, you know? Yeah. Dude, I still remember the first time I had ever seen Knock Loose. Like, I had seen, like, some video they put up, and I was like, my man Brian's got to get some balls on him or something. Like, this is too high, and I just wasn't fucking with it. And then we jumped on. They did a show at West Kensington in, like, the basement, right? And this is when Jesus Peace was, like, just kind of starting up and, like, getting seen. That shit was fucking insane, dog. Like, I saw Nakus play, and that was, the, like, one of the biggest pileups I've seen since, like, one of those, like, old ceremony videos with the bald guy running around with a crusty haircut. <laughs> like, it was actually, like, I had to stop and, like, look at a couple of my homies, like, yo, what the what the fuck? Like, why aren't these people at these other shows? You know what I mean? Like, seeing burials, and, like, I've known those kids since they were, like, 14, 15 years old from the Burbs. You know what I mean? Like, seeing their shows and all those kids packing out the fucking voltage lounge and stuff. I'm like, where are these people coming from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we should be grabbing these fools too. Like we have a sound that, that steps in both these worlds. Like, yo, this is something that needs to happen. You know, like we kind of need to bring these kind of worlds together, not necessarily be like, we need to change hardcore or some shit like that. It was just like, like I said, these are like-minded people. You know what I mean? Like, whether or not we all see eye to eye on shit, like there's no reason everybody shouldn't be coming to shows together. You know what I mean? I mean, you know where I stand on it, and I feel like of course you gave us, you gave us a really good opportunity with the Jesus Peace burial show at the Underground Arts Black Box Room. Uh-huh. And I mean, when I told you we're doing Kaonashi, you're like, all right, that's bet. It's like I see, I see the parallels in what the music that they're into, and obviously for them, they don't they don't see that what you know what i came from was first in the linear progression so all yeah. the things that they're doing is shit we had already done so i feel like it's kind of like a kid with a guilty conscience like i don't want to go there and fuck with you guys because you guys don't like that i listen to the other band it's like i don't care if you listen to another band What's uh, that kid? yeah uh i always say his name wrong he said he was in that band peaceler eh, eh. yeah Ugly. Yeah, yo, Woobly is so funny, dog. <laughs> yo, yo, like, so I'm on South Street getting food with Bob, and this kid pulls up at a skateboard. He's like, yo, man, I really want to play a show for you guys, man. I'm serious, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he said my band's called Peachler, and I started, like, oh, my God, because I was laughing because Bob Wilson – played a show and someone's like and the singer from malice of palace said the peaceler yeah so that's why he named it that i think <laughs> and i said bob was mind blown that this is a kid who named his band after what bob had got yelled at on the internet but that's the circle like i look at things as continuity you yeah. know um i was into a lot of heavy stuff when these philly dudes were still talking about there's no better band in hardcore than floor punch and i'm like yeah they're dope but what's up with fury of five and hate Breach? straight up 
You know, like, what's up with this other shit? Yeah. So, like, I see that I was on the precipice of a transition in hardcore in the mid-90s. And I and this and this era is the early 2010s, where these younger kids had a underground, like, the upside-down of hardcore. And they yeah. felt they felt blocked off. But we never blocked them off. They just didn't want to step into the world. And it was actually it was Jesus beast that kind of gave them the rainbow bridge to come over into our place. And I, and I think it, 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 it speaks volumes for the character that you are specifically in general in the band that you actually able to like mesh those two worlds together, you know, especially for our shows, you know? Yeah. Joe, there's like a big thing you gotta uh, take into consideration with, you know, these two worlds is that, it wasn't always very welcoming, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, the older cats maybe didn't give a fuck because they already knew what was up with metal and stuff. That younger group of hardcore cats that were all into, like, mostly youth crew shit and more, like, traditional-sounding hardcore, uh, they weren't very uh, outgoing. It wasn't necessarily a violent uprising, but they were vocally against the people who listened to the shit that I was listening to and also going to the shows, you know what I mean? Like, that um that connection to them like like you said like you see the logos and you hear a different like a certain sound like you just think that's what it is everybody had written these kids off to be these corny ass dickheads you know what i mean like fuck these fools like we don't really need that shit but in all reality like y'all cats are the same bro just in different ways you know just as cringy we just gotta kick it yeah <laughs> well like for me i find similarity i don't think they realize like I was 15 years old with long hair having to mitigate yeah. a world where if you were, if you weren't wearing boots, you're getting hurt because everyone was moshing with boots on. Yeah. I was trying to mosh mm-hmm. cool, but then there's older cats like, we don't mosh like that here. Part one. And then you, go uh, yeah. So like when you said tiger's jaw, instead of us, stand, we would mosh hard for lifetime and people would get bummed. Like there's more similarities in my come up and my growing period in hardcore with what your world is and like there as long as there's been posy people who think that their music is better they've had zines and avenues whether it was in the 90s with the zines the 2000s with the mullet board and later bridge nine board where they castigate anything yeah. that isn't what they think is pure hardcore so we've always dealt with them the same way like look it's hands we'll fuck with your bands but you know like who are you but someone trying to tell us we don't like these bands and like it's like I yeah literally Zach from Bulldoze had said in his podcast, if it wasn't for the you know the Judge record was a super big influence on Bulldoze. So like where people who cap yeah. up beatdown be like, oh, you today is whack. You today and Judge yeah. was <laughs> the Bulldoze. So like where some young yeah. kids might be like, yo, that motion list and white shit's whack. But it's like, yeah, I already I went through the same it's the same cyclical appearance of people who listen to one style of music kind of denigrating people who don't listen to that and it's dumb but like the young kids have to understand it's like yo it's it's love until you start pulling apart the culture when you start attacking cultural yeah. importance like tell me like a thing for me is like someone's like and it's a young kid lie but it's not a dirty lie it's a quiet lie it's like that's the only fuck with them guys and i always say to them listen it's okay to tell me i've never heard them i'm like there's bands that I should love, like the Bad Brains and certain bands that just go over mm-hmm. my head. Like I would need a time travel mm-hmm. back to when they were at their most importance to understand it. But musically, I'll be like, right. Metallica sounded better at the same time this band existed. You know, like, yeah, I've always been the same way with that shit too, man. 
But yeah. <laughs> as a young kid from the voltage upside down of hardcore listening, look, don't tell me agnostic fronts unimportant. Don't tell me killing times. Yeah. I have to say, I never listened to enough or I can't culturally appreciate it because it has a value. And it's on the backs of these bands that everything that I did and everything that you guys are doing now happened. And it's like you can mm-hmm. you cannot agree with you cannot agree with the importance in a modern construct without without denigrating and being like, yo man, want some real shit? Because it's the chicken <laughs> and the egg that the argument's decided, you know? Without agnostic frontier right. and the egg, there never would be anything that comes after that in some respects. And 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 yeah. that's what I really I think like to get I have I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over no, you. No, man. no, 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 no. To you, uh, to you. I'd say, like, you know, me coming into hardcore too, like, I, I didn't have much respect for anything that was happening, you know, before my time, straight up, because I just didn't give a fuck. Like, half the stuff I listened to was recorded badly. I was like, this sounds like fucking cheeks, but I didn't know what the fuck was going on around it. You know what I mean? Like, it's even to this day where you want to show someone hardcore and you're like, I just want to take you to a show first. I want you to experience what's going on because it gives you a better mental picture of what you're listening to, you know? And I think exactly what you're saying is a lot of these kids, they don't know the history and they don't know the lore behind a lot of this shit. And to them, it just falls on deaf ears. But like, now that I know stuff and I, you know, I've been around a lot of these older cats and they'll talk life with them and seeing what they are. I can relate to their music a lot more nowadays than when I just heard it randomly being like, I don't like this. <laughs> like, I always feel like there's more to these hardcore bands, not even just old hardcore bands, but new hardcore bands that you need some context for, you know? Absolutely. I feel like, so like when you reference, if you reference ceremony to a kid in 2021, right. it's records that that band put out that you're like, Wait, why do people fuck with this? How is this? this yeah. <laughs> but then, and so in relation to Scott Vogel, so like when I had him on the show, I was talking yeah. about how since he had so many bands or so many records and so many bands, he has like a fan base that might fuck with one tire record way more than something that another old school, classically minded person. Like, no, this is the greatest terror record. And yeah. for him, it's got to be interesting as an artist to be like, oh, it's crazy. There's a fan base that just love this record and not that one. Right. Now, I also agree. I came from heavy metal, so I I needed the chaos and the street values of the mad balls, the killing times, the biohazards to, to right. resonate with, with the importance of why hardcore is different. And so the old heads that I've introduced you to that were my old heads, like Dennis and all them, were like, you missed out on you missed out on pagan babies. You missed out on Turning Point. Like I got <laughs> I missed. There's a moment where I'm like, why I listen to hardcore? I missed all the good bands, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> shit. Like, damn, yeah. I missed all the bands. Like, this shit is booty. What 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 about the bands now? You're right. You know, little did I know as a young kid, I was at the precipice of what someone else would say, like, that was the golden era of hardcore. And I had the same problems with old heads telling me you miss this or that band's whack, and you know, your moshing's fucked up and metal sucks. Dude, it ruins yeah. it for you. Well, it really it can, does. It can if you're not a fucking weirdo who just goes, this is my place and I'm going to find my spot, you know? Right. You have to be a fucking weirdo and you have to find your spot to really, 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 really honestly deal with the bullshit. And I feel like hardcore right now is at a great place because this is hardcore 2019. Think mm-hmm. about this. We had Bloodbather, Hayanashi, Jesus Peace, 
in a room which saves a day. Yeah, so beast mode. Think about it. Like, this is what I wanted. I wanted a world where these younger folks realize, like, this is also your place. Like, right. you could do your fan fest, but yeah. we're still like, do your it's fan still here, fest, yeah. do your FYA, but also do this hardcore because it's all love. And the cultural, you know, there's cultural importance in the bands happening now that will mm-hmm. be felt 10 years from now. Yeah. Yo, and- people don't think about that. Hell, I don't even fucking think about that. And I kind of had to stop myself, like, yo, damn near six years has passed since I've been doing this band. Like, well, that's what I'm gonna get to. <laughs> you guys did, you guys were just trying to be kids in a band, right? It's we wanted to play Temple Basements, fucking fight each other on the weekends. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you were doing specifically what every band starts as. Like, there are bands with this world takeover mind and managers immediately, and like this construct right. of like a professional enterprise. Dude, you guys were doing shit off the rip. Like, fuck it, man. We're just going to play this show. And like you said, at some point, I'm like, yo, your band's getting big. You might not want to play every small show. (laughs) But that initial drop, people were on it from the rip. And something that needs to be said is it it has a lot to do with the caliber of the fact that, like, yeah, you were in Hysterian and you were in these metal bands. But I find that rookie and, and even, like, junior vocalists have a problem with their voice. Not only sonically, but what was said between the songs. And you never had that stutter, like, oh, hey, uh, check out us out in the back. Like, you, <laughs> like, oh. I remember seeing your first set. You guys were like a fucking demon. Yeah. <laughs> and you had, that shirt, you had that shirtless charisma that energized the confidence that you guys needed to build as a band. Right. So I wonder what made you step up and go, you know what? I'm not going to be because there what, and you're totally right. I think also Jesus peace had a lot to lend to make you a more sociable person. Cause you're introverted with an amazing amount of extroversion at times. Mm-hmm. Like I am. So we link like that, but I feel like as you became more confident with Jesus peace, you became your outer voice was more open right. when you weren't on stage. But you, if you weren't who you were, when you got on the ground that mic that first set, I don't know if they would all felt that felt that, uh, that confidence. Where did you get that first set of confidence from? So that first set of confidence was really built while I had my time with Hysterian, quite frankly, because though, it, you know, the lyrics were so ass and like the songwriting was kind of ass, it was all about moshing as hard as you fucking could. You know what I mean? And I always took notes. I was always watching vocalists and how they were doing things and how important it was to control the crowd and how they were doing it and a big part of that is just projection of of your anger like if people don't feel that you're genuine about how fucking mad you are about how like you being up here you're like it's not going to resonate and it goes just into what we were talking about with animals and then picking up on this energy you know what i mean like it's that same shit dude you got to put it out there into the world and people will pick up pick up on it people will sync up on it if I go up there and I'm fucking, hey, hey, guys, like, we're Jesus Peace, that energy is only for the song. You know what I mean? But if we start and I come out the gates hot, you know what the fuck's up from the rip. You know what I mean? Like, now I have this off the rip. I know that this is going to be crazy or, like, I already feel uneasy and I'm, I have that feeling in the pit of my stomach from the time that these guys started to the kind of time that they finished. I'm not going to forget that. You know what I mean? There's like a, a big thing with memory and uh, yeah, for sure. There's a big part of memory and stuff like that, that 
is associated with uh, the emotional part of your brain. And you tend to remember things uh, when you're in an emotional state, like things that really fuck with your emotions stick with you. You know what I mean? It's like semi-traumatic, you know? And if I could invoke these emotions in people like i know this now because you know i've read up on a lot of things but before i didn't i didn't understand this to you know the deepest depth but if i could have people feeling scared and feeling uneasy and feeling like oh shit like it's about to go down then that's a memory that's going to stick you know what i mean like people aren't going to forget that and when jp started i knew off the rip like when hysteria was playing, like I was swinging on people while singing, like all kinds of shit. You know what I mean? Just cause I, I was, I was fucking crazy a little bit at the time, you know? And like, I dialed that back, but I kept one thing and it's to know like, yo, these people, they need the drums to get their body moving and they need somebody to sync up with and feel that like, there's no better feeling than being in a pit where 20 other people are, are mirroring that same energy. You're mirroring, you're moshing, you're fucking your lights out. You know what I mean? Like it feels right. And I wanted to, to be that dude. I wanted to be the person that made it feel right and didn't make it feel like, oh, I guess I have to mosh. Like, I'm going to mosh, but, like, I don't want to be the only one moshing. Like, fuck that. Like, I want you to feel like you're in a fight as soon as those first symbols hit. You know what I mean? No, nah, it's exactly, it's exactly the, the tone of the way that I took every time I've gotten on the mic as a hardcore singer. Really? Fuck this. And there's a mental state of... If you if you doubt yourself, you're not going to perform. And right. there's a performance. There's a performance, and this is something that we've talked about. Like the guitar, you tune it, it plays. You depend right. upon your instrument and your own practice of your instrument to be a good yeah. guitar player. And then you may add stage presence as another factor. Right. Drums is drums is syncing up with the music and making sure the beat stays the same. There might be some flair if you get to the point where you're like a Mackie or something crazy. Yeah, motherfucker, be drubbing. But the problem as a vocalist in hardcore is we're not classically trained. Right. There's no rules, and you're not worried about staying in key with the guitar. But yet at the same time, it's an emotional outlet and Mm -hmm. physical presentation. It's interesting you said drama because drama plays in. If you're not extra if you're not extroverted and you're being and you can not harness some energy of anger or excitement the dramatics of what a good frontman and hardcore is will be lost you know and i feel like there's a ton of hardcore band singers that fall into that second category where like their heart says i want to be a hardcore singer but their balls and their voice and their activity on stage is like dude get behind the bass because you don't got the ferocity that you need from the outset of Jesus Peace, you were able to lead that band specifically with that energy. And it was felt like it's a kinetic energy. And like you said, the human consciousness sees someone, you know, and there's a thousand representatives, representatives of hardcore that are like that. That yeah. one, and it, but it's interesting for the 1,000 hardcore singers that manage to harness the chaos of that energy, yeah. 10,000 their ass. And, Yo, and just, for real. And they're just going through the motions and just being like, What's the cool thing I say next? Yeah, like, <laughs> and I, and I've seen I, I, another thing that needs to be said is when you said swinging on people from the gate, there was Ty, Maurice, <laughs> uh, definitely Aunt Woobly. Yeah, there was um, Eric Walk. Walk's a boshing fool, bro. Even what's crazy is you're you got. 
Kevin Hare out there being ignorant. Like, that I love that. <laughs> Kevin is such a, a fucking a missionary person. And I love like I worked at Cold Cuts for a long time. So I had dealt with Kevin on like a different stance. And I there are times where I've hated Kevin's fucking guts, but the fact that Kevin moshed for Jesus piece, I was like, hell yeah, dog. <laughs> so like, I got Kevin moving in this one longer. <laughs> well, that's crazy. It's like Kevin Kevin's mosh style is not aggressive. It's mm. it's it's a it's a polite mosh. Right. It's active politeness. But you had him like out there like beaming, foaming at the mouth, like <sighs> fogging up his damn glasses. <laughs> and I think yeah. that there has to be something to be said about being supported by your friends first, you know? A hundred percent. That was Jesus Peace's fucking ticket, dude. Our friends were putting on for us. And I think a big part of that wasn't just music, man, because I'm always looking out for my people. You know what I mean? Like, you need a place to stay. I got a hoagie. You got nothing. I got half a hoagie. You know what I mean? Like, it's just how I've always grown up. So it's like that shit, like when JP finally came around and like started doing shit, like people were eager to come kick it. They wanted they wanted to support, you know, and they did their part and pushed us as much as they could, you know, and that that meant a lot because in hardcore, I, say, hey, I hate to say this, but a lot of people are followers. I'd say 80 percent of the people are followers. You know what I mean? No, it's it's a part of the it's a part of the the, the human conscious that we were talking about, where we're not unlike we're not unlike herd animals, we're not unlike a school of fish. People get into groups and they follow a leader, they follow the the syncopated energy that comes from everybody being either excited or not excited. Like you said about like you mentioned, I don't know, man, I might even mosh for this band. I've seen bands for shows where. The guy comes out trying to get his friends rocking, and it just don't happen. And you're like, yeah, shit. And oh, you see, it, you see it die in their eyes too. This is the fucked up thing. You just like see it melt. Run, like where the one guy runs out of the trench to get shot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and it it needs to be said those those first show energies carry so hard into the heart of the band to be like, okay, we got this, right. And it's what, a call and response thing, dude. And, and the next part about it is, is regardless of your first show, your first demo, your first shirt, you yeah. know, you guys are really a band where I, I think Anthony's a jerk off in a lot of ways where he's always trying to get the photo op. He wants to be on, it will look at Hey five, six. See, there I am again. I'm jumping at the perfect pot. But the one thing that can't be missed is ants in the crowd. Lewis in the crowd. There's moments of this hardcore where all three of you jerk offs are stage diving at different moments of the same song. Yeah. You guys didn't, you guys didn't get to cool stage laminate and say, oh, I'm done moshing. You yeah. got put on hard when the bands come through. And I love as a Philadelphia hardcore scene that our bands are not only the bands on the stage, but they're still the kids in the crowd. It's still the community, and, bro. And it's, it's something, it's something that I love seeing happening. And I know from you, it's so many of our own bands that support and push up our own bands. You know, it's a great place mm-hmm. in that regard. And you guys leave from the front in that regard as well as being someone who is like, fuck this. I don't care if I'm dude from Jesus Peace right now. I'm the dude about to put my foot in your ass. Straight up. That's who I was first. <laughs> <laughs> I was the dude who's about to pull up, kick you in your neck, bro. I'm still going to yeah. do that shit as long as my body permits it. You know what I mean? Like now I'm off for a song. I'm like, all right, nigga, I need to take a smoke break or something. I need to sit, sit there. But 
you're going to get at least one out of me. You know what I mean? If I fuck with a band, I'm a mosh at least one. So you're going to get me. But I always hated that about hardcore is because everyone felt like they had to retire. They're old at like 24. Like, shut the fuck up, puss. Like, get out there. Like, show everyone why you love what you're doing. Like, I know you don't love this because you wanted to come here and stand here. Dog. Like, you didn't pay money to come stand here. You know? Oh, I agree. I, like, I damn sure didn't, you know? And that's why I always wanted. And I kind of got this from, like, some metal band from Chicago. Like, I used to play all the time. There was this one thing. It's so cheesy, but at the time, I thought it was so cool. And the mosh call was like, I know you didn't pay $15 standing around like a bunch of fucking bitches. And then everyone started moshing dumb hard. I was like, yeah, that's so true, dog. Like, definitely did Dude, not. I, I couldn't relate more. I used to say, if you're in the back, you're already by the door. Go the fuck home. Straight up, dog. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, like, this is not for you. Go to the next one. Now, yeah. Thinking about, thinking about what you're doing, one of the things that we talked, we talked two separate things, but they kind of coexist right now. You said mm-hmm. you were in Hell to Pay and you were playing bass. Yeah. I saw this one video. Of you in a West Philly basement. Yeah. And it was the ultimate fuck you to all that under hell to pay. Because it's your band playing in West Philly. Yeah. I don't even think they knew what you guys sounded like. But I saw the most ignorant ass shit. Go- <laughs> <laughs> and I saw you laughing as you're playing. Because all the people that were in West Philly that were like the mosh police. And Scared. Moshing. Literally, it's like <laughs> it's tying a couple boys being super hard moshing, but then it's like Mikey Balfaco, little Joey Ross, and like little guys being like, You're not stopping us now, motherfucker. Even Lewis, yeah. like it was the ultimate revolt of fuck you, we're still gonna mosh hard at a place where they were like, We don't let mosh and hard happen. And I love that health to pay for as short lived as it was, yeah. you guys were able to give that one great fuck you. Dude, that's, that was my biggest takeaway with Hell to Pays because we could play those places because it wasn't so much uh, – we weren't associated with, like, what they thought was, like, this jock part of Philadelphia. We were just some, like, darkened band that was pulling up playing, and they had no idea that we were going to come fuck everything up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I had already had, like, my disdain for the kids over there, you know what I mean? So I was already, like – fuck these niggas yo like, <laughs> like i would pull ty aside like yo don't hold back dog like just yeah. do your thing you know what i mean like and we would you know and i think like that was that was my takeaway man like we would play with bands that were unexpected and even with the bass i would be trashing people sometimes like i'd be running around just because like i wanted i wanted it to be scary for these fools like i wanted it to be like oh shit hell to face playing oh shit <laughs> Like, let that, me go put know, a helmet that, on. Were, that laugh you just did is literally what you were doing in this video. And I'm watching it from the Instagram. I'm like, look at him laugh. Or you're laughing because Ty's <laughs> crashing people. <laughs> Yo, when I linked up with Ty, it was over, dog. I met Ty at lower level, which lower level. North I don't know if you. Yeah, all I, I don't know if you realize how important that shit was at the time. But that was like. That was where you wanted to go. Like people would go to your shows and shit, and everyone was still kind of like not so much tiptoeing, but they knew they couldn't trip out because low key, like you get checked if you're acting like a fucking dickhead. But like in those basements, anything went. You know what I mean? And it was pulling college kids. It was pulling kids from Jersey because the people who lived in that house were Jersey kids. You know what I mean? So all the kids from South Jersey and and fucking the middle of Jersey, they were all coming over to there too. 
and everyone was just wilding the fuck out. And it wasn't even just my band. It was just for any of the bands. Like people were just wilding, dude. And that shit was so cool. And Ty just popped up with his two twin brothers, like his young bull brothers. He's wearing like, it was like a murder death kill with like a hanging KKK member. I was like, what's up, nigga? What's good? Like I just jumped off the counter, like, what's up? And, I, and we just linked from there. I was like, yo, here's my number, dog. Like if you're around, you're around, let's kick it. And he was in that basement trashing niggas like north like trashing fools and i just was like where has he been this whole time where did this dude come from and he was just he just moved back from texas it was and i guess he was just landed and he was just like i'm here now basically and we just clicked and we were just like fucking peanut butter and jelly at that point straight up (laughs) i was like finally i'm not like the aggro black dude all the time like i got another one with me (laughs) What's important for Philadelphia hardcore people and uh, people listening is that the tie is roughly six foot one, the tallest, lankiest motherfucker. So his range of motion is like seven or something feet. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And he might hit you with a foot literally seven feet away. So Dalsim, yo, he's fucking Dalsim. Yeah, literally. Like, you don't know where you're getting hit, but one of the interesting things is <laughs> next level is a small basement show right outside of a temple campus in a neighborhood. And Again, I'm gonna say the same thing. I'll say I, I do not fuck with like you know just like uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. You don't have a gunfight in a basement. Straight I'm, up, um, I've gotten my head hit on a nail on top of fucking basements. I've yeah, more more cop calling bullshit has happened from shit that busted out at basement shows. And I did mm-hmm. my shit. I'll, I'll be the first one to say they're cool. I hope they happen. Yeah, keep, I'll be outside on on the sidewalk. They have their place. But, yeah, yeah, they got their place and and. Young kids also need their place to try out their shit and not yeah. have someone me be like, hey, think of everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was the first time I encountered someone who was a lot like myself, right? I say, listen, man, I'm all about it. I'm all in. However. <laughs> the however <I'm>, talk. <laughs> however. I'm not against what you're about, but these are, these are kids who aren't playing at your level. They're right. like, you're like a you're like a pro football dude playing at like a PB league level. So I've always loved the chaos factor because I feel like the element of hardcore that I came from saw some like pretty historically dangerous humans. And then in the era when we were all crewed up, it allowed the crew culture to anyone with a shirt to kind of, embellish their scary craziness by just having that shirt and people are afraid. Yeah. And then when the crew culture kind of slowed out, it really went back to, it don't matter what shirt you're wearing, like a Zach Barone's an ass and a killer, <laughs> no matter if he's, whatever he's wearing. Yeah, Zach straight Barone, up. Ty, like the element of individual pit maniacs came back. And I loved it because it was, that's what we came up in. Yeah. And so it's a huge part of Jesus Peace Philadelphia shows is like, you, like there's that moment where you hear woo, and you see people doing some shit and you're like all right this is gonna get nasty <laughs> you know? and uh something that something needs to be said because it was at the precipice of all this but it's important to say like there are bands who have now written songs directly to co-opt i'll say it just straight up co-opt the blm movement huh? but the first time i heard you do oppressor you had a different face about you, man. 
Oh yeah, Honestly. I was pretty mad. I'm not gonna lie, I was I was mad as fuck. I remember I seeing your because I know when you're mad, I know when you laugh. Yeah. I know when you're like, I know when you're when you have exalted all your energy, and I can see it in your head. We're like, I gotta lay down after this. Yeah. Was, go through how you felt the first time after you did those lyrics, like the first time pulling off. How you felt? Uh, man, that is. There's always a feeling that you have when you're writing these songs, and I always stress this to people about my songwriting: is they might not be the most lyrically profound, especially early on. Uh, but they are straight from a place of uncontrolled anger, seriously. And, uh, you know, I use this, that I use that medium to just like get it off of my chest for then. And when JP was like starting out, that was like when the Mike Brown shit was going down. Like they had shot my man dead in the street. You had black people even that were like, well, were you shooting the stole? And that shit, everything just made me so mad. You had, so many people crawling out of the woodworks with this like backwards ass thinking, like so many white cats saying stupid shit. And I just, oh shit. Another big thing for that too. Like when that was happening, uh, I was working at Printfly, uh, that like rush order tees fucking place. And I was like beefing with my manager a little bit. He was going to fire me, but my homeboy, Mike, you know, Mike, that's my right hand, man. Mike Russell, Mike, Walked in there and was like, yeah, if you fire him, I'm leaving. And Mike was like one of the illest printers in there. He was running like a 12-head auto, like never had a fucking bad shirt in this day kind of shit. And just was like, fuck you. And after that, Joe had this thing out for me. And he would put on my fucking queue a bunch of Blue Lives Matter shit and like cop shit and all this other shit. Because he knew how I felt about it. And I was going through it with them and they wouldn't let me off for like for shows and shit like that. And I was just like so mad about everything. And I wrote that song and I remember feeling all that anger at once when I was writing that song. And when I finally got to play it for the first time, dude, I felt like I could genuinely just explode. Like I felt like I was ready to fucking implode and just spontaneously combust because I was so fucking mad at everything. Because at that time, just as a human being, I had never felt so threatened in my life. You know, and the person I am, like, I'm all cool till I start feeling threatened. And then I have problems with managing my anger and, you know, like just being a normal person, like all of my reason shuts down. I can't talk correctly. You know what I mean? Like, and that song opened all of that shit up, man. Like it, it really just took me to a place where I felt. I could get all of this out of my body in one shot in one like minute and a half, two minutes. And that's always something that like, I could be so fucking gassed from the set. But as soon as that happens, it clicks another part of me that I push away every day in my life as a black man. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like, it's the same feeling when I hear someone call me a nigger straight up. It's like that ancestral hatred that like comes up. And I'm just like, Yo, I, I could kill you right now, straight up. And the first time I played it, dog, I felt that. And as weird as it is and as backward as this sounds, like when I was going through like a very angry point in my life, I felt comfortable in my anger. And I felt like my anger was something that was still driving me through my everyday life. And I, I welcomed it. I didn't check myself ever. I was just this angry motherfucker. And I was okay like stewing in the shit, you know? And when I moved back, I realized, like, that's not really the way I want to live my life. And I put that away until that song, <laughs> basically. 
so when I got to play it for the first time, dude, I just felt this fucking this presence in me, man. And it, it fired me up and it still happens to this day. And it, it re-energized me when that Cody shit happened, you know, it was like, you know, like this is, this feels good. You know, like not only is it a place for anger for me, but it's now turned into something where I connect with all these people in hardcore that I feel a connection to just because we are black or like people who would fight for me. If some popped off, like this was for me and my so-and-so uh, like, quote unquote comrades you know what i mean <laughs> you're talking about the, cody, the girl when the cody the girl got up yeah cody the super girl kaz's daughter so, so kaz and brax are guys from philadelphia who have been around hardcore and cody is like my niece she gave me a really awesome birthday gift this year actually it was like super hell yeah having a boomerang <laughs> oh hell yeah <laughs> And so Cody has been growing up in Philadelphia hardcore. Her father is a really good friend of ours. And she's just a beam of positive, amazing light. She's mm-hmm. learning the bass. She's learning music. And she gets up on stage during uh, This is Hardcore with Jesus Peace. And started singing those words. And you could feel like a pin drop in the emotion of that room. Mm-hmm. It was so <clears throat> different because I feel like as everything we've talked about, you being a leader with your voice and the way that you have been juxtaposition between or something between the hardcore metal world and the straight hardcore world, you pass off that mic to her and like this is also her fight. And I rem- and there's a lot of moments in this hardcore, and that's one of the moments where being present on the stage for Jesus Peace is 90% making sure someone doesn't get really, really, really hurt. Yeah. <laughs> that's when Ty and John and everybody's allowed to do what are they going to do? Whatever you got to do. Yeah. You get, you, get it out. You know? <laughs> so it's like, all right, boys, full aggression. Everyone's going to deal with whatever happens and we'll make it work after. Right. But that moment, there was a real moment and it wasn't just social politically. It was like the whole crowd felt it. But yeah. There was this little girl. She was she 10 then. Yeah. She I think she, she was so eight good. or something, dude. Yeah. She and was I, mad young. I didn't even know that she could scream, by the way. I just thought she was going to do some little girl yelling, which I'm still for. Like, get, go ahead, dude, and, like, live it up. That's some shit that I would dream about doing as a kid. You know what I mean? Like, I'd never expect to stand on the stage, let alone in front of that many people. And I just thought it was really cool. I was like, hell yeah, dude. Do whatever you want to do. And then she screamed the way that she screamed. And, like, even – I'm sure you saw my face at that moment. I was as surprised as everybody was in that room. I was mind blown, dude. Like – uh, there's only told, so many times. I was told ahead of time she's going to take the mic, so make sure. Because, you know, there's always people on stage being crazy. Yeah. And our stage crew was like, okay, make sure Cody has a clear spot to grab the mic. And that's when, like the only thing I knew. And I'm like, oh, cool, craziest song on the craziest set right now? Sure. Let's yeah. get the chaos level. So I was really cognizant of what was going on. And I see this, and I'm like – and I remember your face. You were like, holy shit. <laughs> I'm gonna make Sunny. I'm gonna make Sunny do a GIF of your face when you hear her voice and you see what you're doing. Because I've seen the video and I'm like, you can see you're genuinely surprised and elated about it. Fuck it, dude. That that was crazy. That was genuinely one of the craziest things I've ever felt in my life. And shout out to for one, shout out to Ty and Corey for immediately turning into her bodyguards. <laughs> that was so sick. But dude, I remember seriously like. I could have peed my fucking pants, Joe. I was like, oh my God, like, this is fucking crazy. <laughs> like, 
And like, I even fucked up my words. Like, she's like, I messed up one of the words. I was like, no, kid, I messed up the words, yo. I like, I was speechless, dude. I, yeah. I, I had to kick back into autopilot mode and be like, you've done this a million times, get it together. Like, let's do this shit and just finish it out. But there's a point where I even grabbed the mic saying, I just stopped saying, I just looked around like, shit. <laughs> like shit man like this is this is an unparalleled feeling this is something i could never recreate in my life you know and i just had to take a step back and like really take that in and it, it gave a new light to that song as well because it, it wasn't just me and the people in my age group that was as mad as as they were i'm not saying that cody has this huge political mind but i remember being her age and still dealing with the shit you know what I mean? Still dealing with my friend's parents saying the shit they do. Still dealing with neighborhood kids saying shit to me and fighting kids. Dealing with my friend's brothers saying shit to me and fighting them. You know what I mean? Like, that shit isn't just uh, an adult problem, man. This is also a problem for children. And, you know, it, it really just hit home. And it, it just made me think of the song in a new light. You know? Like, I could play it a million times and I wouldn't feel any different about it. Now, thinking about what you just said, would you say that because it's important um, that we acknowledge hardcore and Twitter and Instagram obviously goes off the rails from time to time in performative yeah. ways. Yeah, all the time. In the same in the same breath of saying that, do you feel like your presence and the presence of so many people you mentioned on, on, on just there, along with that song, the importance of Jesus Peace, do you feel like these songs and the presence of these people are getting through to the hardcore scene at large or do you feel like because hardcore scene at large is a giant culture that <laughs> you're still exhibiting the racism and stuff that you exhibit uh, you experienced pre coming into shows do you see like hardcore is a safe place from it or do you still see it no you still see it you know what i mean in so hardcore there's me some of the stuff that you see oh uh, man I mean, it's, I like it's, to, I, like to, I like to hear it because obviously, what do I know from it? I'm a 40 year old white <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, I mean, you can start with the whole Wigger Slam era. You know what I mean? Like, that was something that I was coming you in. Not that down for me because I, 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 I don't I, even use that word because I hate it. Yeah, it fucking boils my blood. But <laughs> the whole Wigger Slam thing was cool. Everyone starts saying it and like trying to embody what they felt Wigger Slam was, which was funny from the fucking rip because, like, just think about what you're saying for a second. But also, like, you had kids trying to wear gold chains, like, big pants, huge shirts, like, trying to embody what, like, the 2000s era of Black people was just to fit what they thought this social construct was so that they could fit into this wigger slam, quote-unquote, thing. And, like, even with JP having, like, these slam parts, you know what I mean? Like, I had to deal with that shit all the time, and it fucking sucks so bad. It's annoying. And outside of that, like, even with Twitter, like, everyone is always trying to be this fucking character and they don't understand like a lot of the tropes that they try and, and bring in and like try to run with and like even fucking everyone ever trying to adopt like African-American vernacular. It's just kind of like, just be your fucking self, dog. Like we know you're not this person. Like it's not the days of trying to get like a pass from somebody, bro. Like you're not, you're not impressing anybody with your shit. You know what I mean? And I see it all the fucking time on the internet, mostly, you know what I mean? I don't really see it in person so much. Because social anxiety has ruined most, like, social interaction with younger people, you know? It's just about what they choose to broadcast online that just makes them look like like a fucking nut, for sure. You know what I mean? 
And uh, I, I guess the best way I could put it is like a new face of like liberal racism where they're like, I'm down, but really you're just being a fucking nerd. You know what I mean? Well, that's cyclical to what we were talking about, like when you were in high school. For me, yeah. Well, like punishment, we grew up in Frankfurt. We were buying our clothes for Margaret and Orthodox. Yeah. So there's like, a, so there's a picture of like me, Mike Brennan, Damien in gold chains because we got to <laughs> have. Yeah. In pure players and Fubu because that's what we were buying. Right. And someone's like, someone was like, were you guys? And someone said to me like, are you guys like a wigger slam band? I'm like, first of all. <laughs> If you if you called if you called like someone if you no one self-identified, no one of our people self-identified. And in fact, that was the slight to my age group. Yeah. From the neighborhood dudes, like the old neighborhood dudes would say that. And uh-huh. then on top of it later on, as hardcore kids, Madball, Biohazard, Fury of Five, Marauder was all like, oh, that's that wigger heart. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what city culture, bro. That was just the like, culture like, of the city. And that was so, so like, immediately, like, well, you know, we still fight Nazis and we hate them, but what are you saying there? What are you Brian, saying? What you're are saying, you saying white nigger right there. You're saying white nigger. I, I fuck with white nigger slam. And it's like, what do you, shut up. So then, <laughs> For those listening, don't get it. Slam is like a heavy breakdown that sounds hardcore-ish, but comes from the death metal. It's like a slowed mm-hmm. down death metal breakdown. It's got a groove like, to it. Yeah, it's a groovy breakdown. Like a, if you took suffocation, pierce them within, and you added like a hip hop offbeat, is what mm-hmm. it kind of sounds like. And the thing is, I remember seeing an irony too in it. Like, so wait, you young kids grew up in the suburbs away from street culture, mm-hmm. but you're you're extraordinarily wearing like a Oh, like, oh, you know, I'm wearing these big gold chains. And it's like, that shit's okay in Europe. We're like, they think it's all a parody. <laughs> right. And like, they don't get it. Like, that band Cunt Punch, whatever. Like, like Cunt Hunt 777. <laughs> <laughs> but this was like a legitimate thing that existed. And when I first heard about it, I'm like, first of all, don't put punishment up in this. Yeah. You know, like, keep us over here. We were just dressing what the times was. Like, yeah. You know, like, I, I got my hair braided because we were listening to R. Kelly and he has that track. Come on, someone braid my hair. Oh, and we were, hanging out, we were hanging out with these girls and the girl's like, I'll braid your hair. And I had long hair and I let her braid my hair up. Right. So How red was your scalp? <laughs> <laughs> What's so crazy is, so I braid my hair for Chris Dysphoria's wedding, who was on episode three. My yeah. mom buys me and Mike Brown champagne color suits because we were like, like yes. Mike Brown, Mike Brown lived in my mom's basement. Like I wasn't yeah. allowed to. My mom was like, you can't live here anymore, but my son Mike can live here. Mike lived in my mother's house when yeah. I was not allowed to live. That's how close me and Mike are as brothers. Right. And my mom got me and Mike matching suits and ice just for this wedding to show up at. Right. And then we had a punishment tour a week later. So I go on this tour and I'm like, I'm not taking these fucking braids out. But they yeah. broke naturally. So the last day of the Northern California tour, I had a blonde afro for like a good four hours. Just curled just, out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and someone was like, what the fuck? Someone was like, what are you guys trying to do? And I'm like, uh, and I'm like, you got to remember, I'm 20, 20 years old. So I'm like, this is what I'm doing. Like, I don't, I didn't yeah, know. I don't know. Wasn't a yeah, I, I, I literally, so then years later, when there was people trying to like affect that look and do, it was always a throw off because like, we were organically stuck in a juxtaposition of a hip hop world, a hardcore punk scene, skateboarding, all this stuff, graffiti writing, mm-hmm. and heavy metal. And yeah. then years later, they're trying to create it. And I, and so, 
the wigger the wigger slam thing i hate it i hate the term um we have young kids on our job so mm-hmm. I've, I've averted to uh no cap and oh, oh yeah. god because yeah. like, Yo, man, oh god though and I'm, so then i get stuck saying it too oh yeah. my god all right and I said so, so i said something i i wrote something on twitter to me, like if I would say it, you would see that I'm kind of like affecting like a sarcasm to it. Yeah. And Corey was like, "Yo, man, you you don't gotta say that like that." And I'm laughing yeah. like, "Yo, you don't <laughs> get it." Like, it's like I work with these young kids, and they're like, "Yeah." First of all, until two years ago, I never even see what Snapchat was, and these right. young kids go on it. And, and now we watch uh, TikTok, concrete TikTok at break. We're like, "What are these assholes doing?" It. Yeah. <laughs> but like my vernacular only changes with the young kids, but I see a lot of white Twitter with y'all. And I'm like, you know, you don't say. Oh that. my you know, god! Like, come on, dude, it fucking drives me nuts, Joe. I'm telling you, like, I know you don't talk like that. Why are you typing like that? And well, then the, the difference is, is like, here how it goes is, y'all, and then they'll say something that's like attacking other white people for being racist, but it's like your own affectation, like your own effect of the of the what you're writing emulates the racism that you're attacking. And I, and I, and I don't understand white guilt. I truly don't have it. And I mean that in the most sincere way. Like I grew up on a fucking welfare line. I grew Mm -hmm. up poor as shit. I had to learn through growing up with people. Like I was good, but he's not. And I'm like, well, why is he not? Right. Because what? Well, that's my dude. That's our dude. You know, like in the concrete world, uh, one of my biggest mentors besides John Mike is a dude named Donald Council, aka Country. He comes yeah. from the South. Fifty-four years old, six foot four, the most pleasant dude. And sometimes I'm like, oh, get Country, and I'll get the weird look from the old guy. Like, I don't really like him. I'm like, he's a great cement mason. What's the problem? Yeah. Uh, I I I understand that there's a white defense that says I don't see color. Everyone sees color, so just stop saying. Yeah, that. don't have to say like, that. Like you yeah. see it, but. <laughs> I look at it like don't let that be the causation of your of what your choice is. Right. If they're a good guy, they're going to be a good guy. And I find that in all this Twitter, there's a reason to attack other people to put yourself up. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about oppressor, for me, I don't think you ever had a relationship to like this is going to be a song that is going to be like the Earth Crisis Firestorm. Like you right. genuinely wrote that from the heart. And it's something mm-hmm. that in the performative world of the George Floyd moment, there were bands that were more like, oh, well, we sold more shirts. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is supposed to be about the funds being raised, the, 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 the right. effects that you're giving on this community. And, and, I, and I didn't see it, but I was waiting for someone to be like, well, you know, Jesus Peace has a song about it. It's like, yeah, because this motherfucker lived it. This motherfucker yeah. wrote this shit from the rip. Right. And it, there was just an emotional connection. That shit bothered me, too. Everyone wanted to write songs about it all of a sudden. It's like, cool, I'm glad y'all decided to jump on the bandwagon now. But this shit's been happening. It's been fucking happening. Why are you writing it now? You know what I mean? Why are you putting it out now? Do you see a place in hardcore where our generation will affect the outcome of further generations through things they learn or do you feel like when people leave hardcore they leave a lot of those trappings behind and they just go back to being like their boring white self i think they go back to being their boring white self quite frankly you know what i mean like i don't disagree i don't <laughs> a lot of the times i just feel like like you said it's a lot of white guilt and it's a lot of performative bullshit you know and yeah i see it nonstop. and sometimes i even let it affect me and i had to check myself and it's like yo these people will figure it out for themselves. When you say that, what did you have to check? Like, I have to check myself and like, one, get mad and saying something. 
You know what I mean? Because at this point, I can't just be saying anything I want to fucking say. You know what I mean? Like, it sucks, but it is what it is. Like, I, I have a reputation to not soil at the end of the day. Like, I'd rather embody somebody who is you know, trying to teach people about these things. You know what I mean? If so, then just being like, fuck this idiot, dumbass. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, I don't want to do that, you know? And, and I'll do it in person. Or if you're just doing something stupid, I'll tell you you're being a dumbass, call you an idiot, all that other shit. But like, I don't necessarily have to, you know, broadcast it. And I had to learn that over time because it doesn't really do much aside from empower all the people who do this shit all the time. Well, I feel who, like what's you, up? Have the ability to, you have the ability to educate. Yeah. And you have the ability to lead from the front. And something that is constantly uh, evident is there's social media presence, but then there's a, a pure personal represent, uh, representation and a true like a rep. Like mm-hmm. you are someone that people look to. And beyond the band, I mean, like I'm telling you, as a kid, I watch you literally Afro Samurai kick the entire fucking crowd in one <laughs> and I'm like, Where's this motherfucker coming from? Like, <laughs> you did three kicks in a row in some big ass skate sneakers, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and, and so anyway, listen, this was like the backwoods of the backwoods in a show outside a venue. And yeah, the first time I see Aaron, and you are now someone that has crossed the the threshold into a person of importance in hardcore, where you're leading. And there's so many things that come onto your plate and weigh on your shoulders where, yeah, obviously there's anger. You're going to say, yeah. hey, can't you do this in a different light? And I I fell a victim many times of being like, well, you know, we beat up Nazis. That's not where our shit ended, you know? Yeah. And I did like my culture and my time frame. We let some shit slide because like, well, we're the ones that fought the Nazis. And it's like, yeah, yo, this and this is something that a friend of mine had said and actually fucked my whole world up. He's like, do you and uh you know excuse my impression here is like do you think that guys that were killing nazis were ever good to their black counterparts in world war ii that fuck oh shit yeah and i'm like i was like wait a minute wait a minute (laughs) wait a minute yeah Uh oh like there's a there's a there's work that needs to be done in fact Corey does an interesting job sometimes i think he takes things to like the furthest level but Mm -hmm. i need that extremism and i need that emphasis on myself to understand just how far away from the goal is that hardcore punk needs to be mm-hmm. as far as making sure that not not performative inclusivity but honest pure comfortness you know like right you don't go at it like i look at xavier and his hip-hop art and i'm not like well you know xavier is a young black kid and it'd be good if i like it I put that yeah. shit on and I put that shit on and was mind blown. It wasn't like, no, nah, man, nah. like that mumble shit. Like, yeah, he, he went to it. Boom bap. And I was like, this motherfucker wrote some shit that I would actually like. I like, I don't listen to a lot of modern hip hop because it doesn't, right. it doesn't resonate with, with me. Unless yeah, I'm the same one. I, I listen, obviously, you know, hard car, hard car loves living yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah. Until this summer, I didn't even understand that. Then I listened to him like, yeah. all right, I get what that is. Yeah. I'm not going to put it on. Right. But you start going to the boom bop era and now you got me. Now you got me. And he has I'm the hooks. same way, man. He has hooks in his beats, he has a flow, he has rhythm, he has it's incredible the talent. But there needs to be I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I checked out Zave because I know who he is. There's not because well, I'm trying to support the black artist and I feel yeah. like hardcore hardcore punk white kids need to do more of being earnest. I agree. You know, like don't trip over yourself. 
just be who you are and the rest will come as follows. Yeah, I do. I agree. Anytime I meet somebody who's trying too hard, I literally stop when I say, Hey, look, you don't have to do and be all that. You know what I mean? Just relax, whatever you're feeling right now, take a deep breath, drop your shoulders. We can kick it. We don't have to do that. You know? All right. All right. Um, how does it feel as an American when you go to Europe and they don't understand this? Oh my God, dude, going to Europe was like the most life-changing shit ever. And it's not like Europe is this life-changing place. It just offered me a completely different like perspective on being an African-American man in America. Because, you know, we grew in it. This is all I know. It doesn't seem like it's foreign. A lot of the stuff like we see, we're so desensitized to it. Whereas the first time I played Eperfest, this is like when it really, really, really hit me. Uh, yeah, I, st- I stopped by the Antifa tent because like, I don't know much about Europeans. Like I was, I was actually very low-key scared to go to Europe, not on like a, I'm afraid something might happen to me thing. I just didn't know what to expect. And that's, if I can't expect something, it starts to worry me. You know what I mean? I'm a chess player. I think a couple moves ahead. If I, like Europe was just an anomaly to me, you know? Uh, so I was there. I was like, let me see what these Antifa niggas are up to. Like, see if they bow there or whatever. I go in there and they're playing 13th on a giant projector. And like, no one was really, no one was sitting down watching it. And I just sat in the middle of all the seats, sat down and was like, fuck sound check, fuck whatever the fuck they're talking about. I'm going to sit here and watch 13th. I'm in fucking the Netherlands or some shit. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and watch this. And I sat there and people were sitting down next to me, but their inquiries, they weren't. American inquiries. These people were disgusted and straight up mind blown that these things were happening in America. And to them, and you know this because you've been there, like if there is any kind of influence, it's usually hip hop influence, but there's no real knowledge of the culture and what people have gone through truly. You know what I mean? It's just like, I say this because it's cool. Or like, I, I, I act this way because I think it's cool. Like you said, there's like a, a level of novelty to it. But for them to see like, you know, how people have worked around the laws to fuck us up over the years and like how things went down and how things are still happening today. These people were horrified and it, 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 it fucked me up, Joe. Cause I was like, damn, I should be this horrified. <laughs> I should feel the way that these people are feeling it. I'm so desensitized to this shit, you know? And it made me realize like, we're just like a group of people that got fucking brought there and changed the world. Like we didn't want to be there, but we fucking were there. We made a stand. This is who we are. And we were able to change pop culture, the world, fucking everything, man. And all that shit didn't really click with me, man. Like meeting Africans and like meeting people from around the world, other black people who live in different countries, like just talking shop with them. Like it really fucked me up, man. <laughs> so, so just so people are understanding. So 13th is in reference to the 13th amendment. And so, yeah. It's a really interesting documentary, and it came out like what, like seventeen, sixteen, something. Eight. I, I seen it two thousand eighteen. Oh, sure. Yeah, but I, I remember it coming out, and so the thing that the thing that is hard for Americans at first is that we are the center of our own egotistical world, right? And then so what's uniquely bizarre is that slavery is such. The thing that some people want to sleep under the rug, some people have done so many things culturally to try to pretend it wasn't the end of the world for some people. Right. There's all these different bad behaviors 
So then you got to switch gears here. The Dutch had a huge role in in that whole transatlantic slave trade. Big time. Every single state at one point in time until World War II had some form of colony still going between Asia, the West Indies. And so they had the jump on being like, well, this is the end. We're no longer an empire. Our some little country is just one stupid little state. Uh-huh. And so I think that they had a quicker transformation away from like looking at this. Cause and also they never had a deal. I don't believe so because the slaves, they like, especially the Dutch, they were involved in trading them in uh-huh. that regard. But by the, the time we get to the, yeah, by the time we get to the 20th century, that's further down their history besides the Black Pete and all that stuff that's in the weird, bizarre culture that they have. Mm-hmm. So many of their cultures have figured a way to move forward with it. Right. America America has tried to do everything it can to hide the fact that this happened. And right. then when we talk about white supremacy and we talk about the white supremacy system, even when it was like, look, they're free. They came up with bullshit rules. Yeah. Even when the South really pushed the blacks to move north and the northern cities were supposed to be this new start, the redlining and all these racist ideas came in place because even though the north was like, well, you know, we didn't have slaves as much and, you know, we were always for free and them. It's like the same pat on the back that we give ourselves when we talk about beating the Nazis. Right. Oh, so you're not okay with the North. You're not okay with the, the, the slavery in the South, but you don't want to live next to black people. So you can't right. Redlining. Right. And then, and the fucked up thing is, it was the American blacks that came up to help in a first World War One environment where so many people had died and mm-hmm. helped the industrial start, which would be- benefit World War II America. Right. And then, you know, it just it behooves me to say this that there's a lot of American history that is yada yada yada, and it's specifically the early, the early part of the 20th and the late part of the 19th in the formation when we went from a mostly agricultural country with specific cities and ports as importance mm-hmm. into this industrial giant because of the war. Right. America, America politics have never truly. The white side will say, well, we need to get past slavery. Well, it's easy to say when you don't have a guilt or a placement in fixing part of the problem. Right. And then the juxtaposition is they don't want to take responsibility for what happened. It's accountability. Take accountability for what happened. Let's try to heal things and let's move forward in in a productive manner. You know, but it's like you said, always swept under the rug. Well, it's it's media performative works, mm-hmm. and there's like rich people who pat themselves on the back for doing the little things, but you know, um, I always say the unintended consequence of the white supremacy system was believing that they could create areas where poor blacks could live, and they'll just be away from regular white society, and they'll get the crumbs. Mm-hmm. They didn't really intend. I don't think they truly intended on the aggregate problem of the rich getting richer and the deregulation making poor whites poorer. Mm-hmm. And now there's an entire class of people like myself who I don't know what 
I don't know what it's like to live with a dad, really. I don't like, yeah. no, I didn't grow up like a normal, I don't, like, I, I, TV white people didn't make sense to me. They had dads, they had food. They yeah, like eat. the nuclear family. <laughs> I've never, I've never eaten breakfast at a table with my family before you go to school. But how many movie scenes have you seen? Like, hey, honey. Every time. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this is about. So, like, yeah. there's an entire couple generations of despondent white people who grew up poor <clears throat> who are crazy in their own minds. They're like, well, these blacks got to get over slavery. And they don't get it. And actually something that – why I bring this whole thing forward, it took looking at the European model of how they look at American race relations mm-hmm. to see just how fucking bizarre our shit is. Right. And for me, it was reading – there was a time – in, in high school where I was studying a lot of politics and I was studying a lot of history and they had a completely different thing. They had a completely different idea on it and how America had failed it. But like all things, America failed the American health system all because how the way that world war two didn't affect us the same way it affected them. Right. And so I'm actually, I didn't expect that to be your answer, but I love that you alliterated that for us because it is an American mindset that is still so closed-minded on how to heal this kind of shit. Yeah, I was actually. Have you ever fucked with? Have you ever? Have you ever met Wima from Knuckle Dust? Yeah, I think I might have. We might have talked. I don't really remember off the top of my head, so, but. So Wima, Wima from Knuckle Dust is like six foot three. Yeah. He looks like Jay Z. Yeah. The minute he opens his mouth, he sounds like the most British character in the history of Snatch. <laughs> And the first time I heard him talk, I'm like, I'm looking at Jay Z, who, and like, I, I, I grew up on British BBC because it was like Cockney Jay Z, like the most Cockney Jay Z, and through, through touring with Knuckle Dust and understanding like English culture and how they had to deal with Pakistani immigrants and this the West Indian immigrant, like even England has a better grip, and England was the craziest. Uh, monarchy, the craziest expansionist empire in the history of the world. Yeah. From a small ass little island. And even England handled the situation better. Right. And it was very interesting to, to tour with them and talk to them because their their position was like not only were they dealing with being a black British person, but they were dealing with being having family like he has family in Jamaica and he's got family in Africa. Like yeah. they're still in touch with their native families right they're able to and we're like the black america and this is something that i didn't it hit me european blacks know their family where they're from they know the roots man and it's it's an interesting thing that that was what you got out of europe because i actually found a bizarre hardcore thing where there's a weird european racism blatantly Mm -hmm. and you're like what the fuck like (laughs) like there's there's the, the hardcore white is very subtle racist, but there was a blatant racism, especially the further east you go. Oh, big time. And you're like, holy shit, this is still very much here. Yeah. So it's got to be crazy for you to find a balance point where you're given this opportunity to be this icon that can show hardcore people like, Look, motherfucker, like you're gonna have to deal with a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania hardcore kid in your space telling you that shit's gonna change. And at the same time, they're schooling you. Well, like, look, man, like you don't know the whole picture. And then at the same time, you're dealing with drunk Euros coming up, be like, hey, what's up, brother? Uh, it's gotta be a <laughs> crazy, 
like the first, I, I did the same thing. My first thing was like a European festival. It was the first time I was at in a in Europe and yeah. in a hardcore Europe environment. And yeah. drunken Europe, drunken Euro festival people are just the fucking level, worst yeah. way to get introduced. Well, so it wasn't my introduction. I'd say that wasn't my first time in okay, Europe. Okay. I had I we had played like Karlsruhe, Germany, the first time, but I had had all yeah. like I had all good uh, experiences. Good experiences, you know, with smoking fucking Swiss with everybody, kicking it. You know what I mean? But you love you love that though. It was yeah, I love me a spliff. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until I sat down that like I had like this revelation about myself and my own people. Um, but I had I had some weird experiences. I think on that first tour too, we had played. Uh, it was like some skinhead fest and. Being around that many skinheads is always going to freak me out because I already know that there's a couple crawling in there. You know what I mean? But I had went to like the mess hall or whatever, or the mess tent to get myself a little slop. And <laughs> there's this dude working there serving food who had a Confederate flag, the span of his fucking forearm. And I was just looking at this dude like, what the fuck does he know about the Confederate army that he'd get tattooed on his fucking arm? And like, I remember like not even being able to eat my like potatoes and carrots. I just like threw it in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> and we just were like, I remember going back to the guys. I was like, yo, as soon as we play this shit, we're getting the fuck out of here. Like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Like initially I came into this with an open mind, but to see somebody like that serving my food, I don't even want to fucking know what I could possibly find myself in by the end of the night. You know what I mean? Was a weird thing about European skinhead culture is that it's the basis for what would become American skinhead culture. Yeah. In the amalgamation of the two fronts, the American Mm -hmm. skinhead world and the British and then later like the Eastern European skinhead heritage, this actually is really relevant to what just happened with the insurrection. Someone uh-huh. was like, you see, they put a Confederate flag and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you see that Russian flag? <laughs> do you see that Russian flag? That's from, it happened like six years ago. Someone had photoshopped. Uh-huh. But the fucked up part is the same far right fanaticism that existed in, a, in, in Europe. They co-opted the Confederate flag as like, we'll see, we can relate to these people. And no one's fucked me up because I'm like, why would someone from Poland... <laughs> where the fuck did that come from and right it, it's it, it's always it's it's exactly what you said uh, you know like um I'm a, I'm a big fan and a, and a long time have been immersed in the skinhead culture and it's off-putting and it has its moments where people who are unfamiliar with it will definitely there's some hairs on your skin because like there's guys who came from one side they went to the other there's guys who mm-hmm. wear certain things, but then they talk a different way. And right. It's kind of like, are you a spy? Are you like, you know, like you never. Yeah. Like, what's up, motherfucker? <laughs> it's 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 an interest. It's an interesting culture that if you come, if you have it, like we came in, we came in hardcore when there were still dozens of skinheads at shows. So it was a, it was not uncommon, you know. And in fact, mm-hmm. it took until the early two thousands when like. American History X came out that mm-hmm. you started seeing like these like the California Peckerwood not punk rock emulating skinheads show up and they're like Pantera they're, so they're wearing like broke ass Timbos not Docs yeah they're, like got a Pantera like yeah man I'm a skinhead man and you're like what the fuck get the fuck out of here 
Dude, at least the, the Nazis we the Nazis we fought with, they knew who the business were. They knew the cockney, like they knew the real skinhead roots. Unfortunately, yeah. they were also just having a giant tattoo of Hitler on them. We had to fuck them up. Yeah, it is what it is. You know, it was like <laughs> it took a while until there was like this good old boy Pantera shit, and we're like, where did these assholes come from, skinhead? No, no, you're right. So Yo, it's funny like, you mentioned that, Joe. I I also had to deal with like the. Uh, I just saw American History X dudes. <laughs> Especially being in like a poor neighborhood up in the burbs. It was like so many people kind of liked that. And which like there was like two cats that showed up to high school full booted up and shit, like out of nowhere, shaved head, like white laced kind of dudes. And I was kind of like, yeah, what the fuck's good? <laughs> like me, yeah, like my homie Rashid. Like yeah. it was <laughs> me and my homie Rashid, we were always like. Yeah, that was my right hand man back in the day. He's actually one of the only diabetic boxers now. Rashid Johnson, check him out. He's like one of the new diabetic boxers. But he's been knocking niggas out. He just went pro. He's like the only person who did something good with beating people up <laughs> out of our friend group. But me and him were on it. We were on their ass about it. Like, what's up? And the one kid, he's like, well, my my grandfather, he's like German and blah blah blah. And I was like, I don't, I don't give a fuck. And it, it took us to be like, yo, this isn't some movie shit, pussy. Like. If that's what you're going to be about, like, let's do it. You know what I mean? And that was so mind blowing to me that people could see a movie and just decide that this is what they want for their life. And that's kind of was an eye opener about like how quick it is for people to just be followers in that shit, as opposed to thinking for themselves. You know what I mean? Well, like as a, as a white European white trash mix that I am. Yeah. You see, you always see the guy who's like, "Well, my grandfather's uncle brother was this," and it's like, yeah. I know for a fact that my great grandmother, her family came from Nazi Germany to get away. Right. Um, I have a grandmother. I have a grandmother who is both German and Jewish. I have mm-hmm. a grandmother. I have a great grandmother whose brother was basically drafted and had to stay and fight for Nazi Germany in the Luftwaffe. And you don't see... Well, so here's the deal. You were in the army and you were taken out. I think he was older, so he was in... He was at the end of World War II and he Mm -hmm. was involved in World War War I. He was involved in World War II because he was involved in World War I. He was at the age where they were like, all right, well, we're getting ready. There's no, hey, I don't believe in this because it's the Nazis. They'll fucking kill you. Yeah. And his family, before the war started, had left. They got papers, and they were able to leave the country. Right. So I also have Irish family. And I and just like being like your average neighborhood white dude, you have dudes with big yeah. Irish flags. I yeah. actually fail because all I have is the uh, Mickey's B. I never got the big <laughs> Irish flag. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, like as a kid, I hated my dad so much. I hated yeah. my father so much and his like poor Kensington Irish bullshit that yeah. I really got to understand my mother's German side. But at right. the same time, you didn't see me being like, you know, like yeah. that was yeah. and that's an element that's an element that white people in America look to find. Whereas like you were like we were talking about with women and them being able to know where they're come from. Our genealogy uh-huh. at different stages, you're kind of interesting to be like, well, I'm not just an American. I'm this. But ultimately, there's a beauty in what America is. It means everything in the old countries were left behind, and this was our new promise. And that's why our fucking families were able to come here 
and it right. escaped a lot of crazy shit to get here. You know, and right. America is supposed to be the land of promise for everybody. And I find it to be somewhat appalling, but understandably ignorant. I, I, I'm appalled by it, but then I'm like, oh, wait, you're a dumb idiot and you don't understand the things that pe- the bigger picture. And it's, right. it's something that you as a neighborhood, Frankfurt, Kenzo, whatever you want to call me. I see it like, oh, yeah, well, I'm Irish. It's like, how, how fucking Irish are you, you cunt? You know? Yeah, like, honestly. And it's, <laughs> there's so much crazy shit. Like, uh, I have a friend, I have a cousin who loves Conor McGregor, and he's got yeah. the Irish flag, but there's an Irish flag with the dark orange. That's where the Protestants. And okay. I'm like, oh, but you're a pro. You're a, you know, you're a Protestant cunt. What about being a Catholic? You know, like. Yeah, let's so go down to it. Yeah, let's get down to it. I find that there's always going to be a problem with Americans in Europe because we don't have world context. Right. Europe Europe is like the older brother that we're not really ready to fuck with and listen to. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and everyone in America is like, oh, they're fucking Europeans. First of all, they got, they were the first ones with a toilet that you could push if you have poop or push if you have pee. Straight up. Straight (laughs) up the bat. I was like, hold up. There's two buttons. Two buttons there? What the fuck? You telling me you got two buttons? <laughs> and then, I, and have you ever been in a part of Europe where you had to squat the shit? Yeah, it's Europe and Asia, and those yeah. weird backwards toilets where you just shit on the porcelain and you look at it and you flush it down. Oh, <laughs> and you the shell. Just, Americans are spoiled that we got this big ass five gallon bucket of water to catch our poop in, and actually oh my makes God, you yeah. not want to shit. Because you still yeah. yet, you're like, oh god, I gotta get done. There's no plane on your phone in a European toilet. It's straight up, in and out, and out. <laughs> That's it. There's no other business, and it's like just those subtle things we have to learn as a as people, like from other people. But we're so fucking closed minded. Um, right. I wonder if if you think the same way. I, I felt everything about touring was a blessing to me. Whether it yeah, was breaking down. Whether it was breaking down, whether it was all the bad times, I would take a hundred times over mm-hmm. to be able to be exposed to different places. Like we went to California by the oh, five days after I was uh, turned nineteen. Mm-hmm. I was in Europe, but the right before I turned twenty-five years old. I had cousins that have only been up the mountains and down the shore. Yeah, literally <laughs> up mountains. Yeah, up the mountains. <laughs> down shore. And you're like dead. Up the up the mountains. What do you mean the mountains? <laughs> Obviously, we know what mountains are talking yeah. about. Cuss. You're like, oh, yeah. down the shore. There's only three parts of the entire shore. Like, <laughs> so like, I feel like my pinky's up when I talk about like traveling the world. But had I not been exposed to this, I'd have such a small view. And it, it's one of the most beautiful things about hardcore touring. And I talk about everybody's tour. When you talk to your non-hardcore family members about touring, do you feel like you're almost stunting on them, or do you feel like that they're happy that you got to see this. Well, uh, due to anxiety, I always feel like I'm stunned. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, this is what I do primarily with my time. You know, last year I spent, not last year, but the year before that, I spent then there nine to 10 months out of the year touring. I don't have anything to talk about but touring, you know? And after a while, you can see it, like, from perception, it's just kind of like, this motherfucker could care less about the cool shit that I'm doing because... They're not doing that shit. And it just sounds like you're being big headed when you're really just trying to talk about your life. So I I get super anxious about it. But recently I've been reconnecting with my family. Like my pops is about to get out of jail after like 18 years. You know what I mean? So I've been kicking it straight up. 
Uh, I've been kicking it with his family more often. And I've just been reconnecting with my old cousins because I fell out of contact when my grandmother died. So I started feeling like I missed that feeling of family. So I've been going back and everyone's like, you're like a world traveler now. Like, what the fuck? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and, you know, I talked to them and a lot of the times, like some of my cousins that are just like, you know, black people. I'm like, yo, there's more to this world, dog. Like, you just got to get in a car and drive somewhere. Like, it'll open your mind up. I promise you, you know, the, th- that having traveled and, and being able to say that I've traveled and, and experienced the things that I've experienced, it's given me a completely different outlook on life. And like I said, I had always been kind of like an old soul, but my worldview was very limited to where I only thought that I'd ever make it because I felt like it was a waste of time to think about the other shit. You know what I mean? Uh, so when I started traveling, I started realizing problems were a lot bigger than myself or like what's going on in the city. And I may have a problem with something so tiny, but there's so much other shit in this world that I could be doing or try to do, you know, than be caught up on something so stupid, you know, and a lot of people don't necessarily have that outlet. So they get caught up in a bunch of shit, fucking shooting people, you know, all the stupid shit. Like, fuck that. Just get a car, go drive to the Florida or something. <laughs> No, in fact, um, the first U.S. tour I was on, yeah, the workroom blacklist, it was shot in the hand three right. weeks after I got to California. <clears throat> Had I not been in California, I would have got shot that night with my friends. Right. And I feel like the holy seer, God, the energy put me on a path to get out of the neighborhood that summer mm-hmm. so I could see what the rest of this world is about. Right, and actually, one of the—it's th- amazing your father's getting out of jail because I feel like as we get to this next conversation we're gonna have, it becomes an integral role. My father, one of the last things that me him said before I just told him basically, if you're not fighting me, don't talk to me anymore. Yeah, kind of played—he kind of played me out and was like, "You think that because you went and you did these fucking tours and you listen to this music, yeah, you think you're better than me?" Kind of said, "You're better than me, and you have a lot to learn about life." And I'm like. You were a crackhead, bro. Like, yeah, like what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, I know you mind you, there's probably shit I could have learned from him. He's dead now, he's been dead a long time, but like, yeah, bro, you're a crackhead, like, a, yeah, in, in the realest sense of the fucking world, like a thief, uh, a liar, a scumbag, and you're gonna come down on me when I, you should be happy for me. So, I always wondered people from the Philadelphia, like the real city, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the adverse thing that happens is some people don't want to see you get beyond it. Like, why are you? Oh, for sure. Why are you leaving? And I felt sometimes my mother, for all her ups and downs and faults, was the biggest supporter of making sure me, Mike Brown, Damien, and all the boys could get the fuck out of Philly. Yeah. It's all that. And, you know, um, I actually, thinking about all this, it's the savior point for us. It's having mm-hmm. hardcore, hardcore being the vehicle to get us beyond our own exposure. Right. And without it, without it, I don't know where my life would be. I don't think I'd be breathing and we would definitely wouldn't have this podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> now um, it's not yada, yada, yadding over Jesus peace, but this is an Aaron Hurd interview because I, it's right. you, not that the band's history, we could do the band history a million times. Yeah. Everybody. You're, you're, we all know that Dave's got a big head. And <laughs> John's the man, Lewis is the man, you're the man. That's how it works. That's the GDP story. <laughs> this is Hardcore 2019. You yeah. Put, you put to me out, you put it all out there on the floor. 
Yeah. You on that stage that night. Exert it. And I'm telling you, for anybody wanna wanna see pure passion, watch the video from P- Jesus Peace. Oh man. You, what few people know is the, the our guest tonight, Aaron Earl Heard, went to the room that we have as like a backstage room, and I put him on a couch with a blanket in the AC so he could chill for an hour after. Like this is where this crazy shit. I was talking to doing about a burn reunion before they ever did a reunion. Yeah. And Chaka said no to me. And yeah. Like, What's the matter? He's like, I just don't feel the energy from this band. And it would take me two weeks to recover after I play a set like this because I've had it stored up so long. Yeah. And I've always thought that was a Fugazi comment. Until uh-huh. so I seen you on stage going crazy, put everything on the fucking line. Yeah. And emotionally, dude, you were on emotional collapse that night. I really we, was. <laughs> you, we put you backstage under a blanket in the dark. And I said, no one bothered the kid. He needs to rest and relax. You had to emotionally and mentally recuperate after that set. Yeah. That was like a career set for me seeing you. But then so much of that, I wonder how much that had to do with like the realities of you being a constant fucking like you literally toured that much you're about to mm-hmm. play this giant fucking show you're supposed to have a tour with nothing and you're about to be a father was that all the reason to converge of all these things and where that energy came from oh yeah for sure i mean i had been ripping and running so long that i hadn't had time to uh really really center myself you know you're on the road you're going you're going you're going you don't have that time to I mean, you do, but you don't necessarily take that time to sit and center and just say, this is where I am in the world, accept everything that's happening around you, whether or not you've been neglecting your home life and just take that in, you know? And uh, by the time that had happened and I had found that I was going to be a father, I, I had so much emotion going through me because I, for one, was scared out of my goddamn mind. <laughs> but also like I didn't have an outlet to talk about these things. I don't necessarily know how, well, now I do. Now I'm getting better with uh, expressing my emotions and my feelings and talking about them. But at the time, even then using Jesus piece as like, you know, kind of therapy too, at the time, all of it was pushed towards getting it all out in one big burst. So I would just hold all these feelings and all these thoughts and, you can't necessarily talk to your degenerate friends who get drunk all the time about taking this gigantic life step. You know what I mean? And by the time this is hardcore happened, like I was just in such a fragile state of mind that I was like fighting tears almost every second of the day. And it was, it was a really, it was hard for me to even show up to be honest. Cause I just wanted to lock myself in my room. And I remember being like showing up and about to go on stage and you just looking at me, just being like, you ready? Like <laughs> shake that shit off for a second, dog. Like anything you're feeling right now needs to happen right there. You know what I mean? Any of that shit you're mad about, any of that shit you're scared about, angry about needs to happen like on right there. And yeah, it's the excellent. It did. It's literally, it's, and I see it. Like you exercise your fucking, you exercise that fucking demon, man. Yeah, for sure. I almost started crying the cafe through the set. <laughs> <laughs> like straight up you can hear my voice faltering when i'm talking in between i think like right before neuro prison or something well that's what happened is there was a i i i was watching again i have to be on stage because people go fucking crazy yeah but i remember talking to you beforehand and being like 
if you would have guessed, if you would have got on stage and said, hey, man, hey, fuck you, I'm never doing Jesus Peace after tonight. I would have been surprised because you were on a hair, you were on a hair trigger at that night. Yeah, big and time. Instead, instead, there was an energy that's never seen before. Right, like that. That was like a, a accumulation, and so Jesus Peace, you really gained from Philadelphia to a national act to an international act to you even touring with nothing, and then all of a sudden, here you are. You're ready to do this. You're you're being a coming father, and all this is pending on you, and you go out and put it all on the line. It's over. You're a father now. <laughs> Leo yeah. Has, Leo has teeth. Teeth, fool. He's Joe. He's running around my house now, dude. I love the picture. <laughs> now, I don't know. I, I I always ask instead of asking the question, do you feel comfortable talking about fatherhood and like what? Always, like? yeah. Oh, I, I think it's picture. important to talk about fatherhood because there's so many young people like myself who grew up fatherless that are terrified of the thought of rearing a child and bringing up new life in this world. You know. So, yeah, let's talk about it, please. <laughs> how, old, how old were you when he was in the world? He uh, Le- eyes first open. When Leo came in? Yeah. I was 28 years old. No, I was just going to turn 28. So I was 27 turning 28. I'm turning 29 this year, which is fucked. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember... Like, I mean, dude, years ago, I said, like, we all probably want to have a kid by the time I'm, like, 27. But I didn't have the shit going on that I had. So, like, in my mind, I was low-key, like, this isn't the end of the fucking world or whatever. But, like, I just, I have a problem with, like, logic stuff. So, if I can't, like, figure out how I'm going to do this or, like, how I'm going to do something, like I said, like, with Europe, like, I didn't understand what the fuck was about to happen. So, it made me very, very anxious, you know? And fatherhood was something that had me so anxious that I wasn't myself. And I was just like in this, like, it's almost like spacing out, but all the time, <laughs> like I just completely disconnected mentally. And if I did come back, it was just like this burst of emotion at all times. I was 15 years old and told I was going to be a dad. Holy shit. And my life changed dramatically. Yeah, and then I was uh, twenty three, turning twenty four, when I was told I was gonna be a dad again. Yeah, and I was in the midst of U.S. tours, the beginning of European touring, and in a fucking gang. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I sincerely am not a good dad because I just was not a normal human. Right. The biggest, I don't have regrets about it, but if I could have changed anything, I wish I had all of the situations when I was later and more capable. Mm-hmm. When you just said that, you just alliterated how I felt. I just was paralyzed by the what ifs. Yeah, the what ifs, man. The they got the meanest right hook in the game. <laughs> like, I have a very terrible relationship with my father at different waves, and he's probably one of the you know when your worst enemy ends up giving you like it's a TV, it's literally out of a movie. Like yeah. your worst enemy ends up being someone who like you end up like you ever see Conan the Barbarian? Yeah, yeah. It's like who now more than me should be your father? I've given you everything. It's like so much of what would I use energy and harness 
came from my father's crack addiction, my father's abuse, my father's absence, my mother telling me my dad was dead and him showing up on my door a couple years later. Like, uh, that's a little crazy. so much of the crazy <laughs> shit. And so, like, knowing that your father wasn't in your life, how did you go into that delivery room and how, like, what was the emotions? Oh, my God. For one, I watched him come out, which was the craziest shit I've ever seen. Thing, in my no human life. being will ever, even a woman who has the baby, doesn't get the view of what happens when a baby comes out of a body. Straight up, there's nothing like it, and it's I, I I'm still I can remember my kids coming out and just being like, "Oh my fucking god, that's what." It was. <laughs> yeah, this she just pushed out a human being. <laughs> like this oh is a this is life. You know, so my daughter, who's older, um, she was turned around. So I had a weird view. So I'm like trying to hold the mom's hand because she's in pain. And they had these giant things that look like salad tongs. Yeah. In her shit. And her like trying to give them like, a spin, huh? And I'm from the, I'm looking at her from the head down and I'm looking like two doctors that look like they're just, I'm like, clawed out. Like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> when I got down to look, I'm like, oh, shit. Like it came out, and I'm like, like my daughter came out, and I'm like, my lord, this yeah. is not what I expected, bro. Like this is like, right? And uh, fuck my, literally fucked my whole world up. To yeah, and you get an insane new respect for the person you thought you loved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't know that love for a person until you see your child and the mother of your child pushing it out. <laughs> and um, you know, at, when when this airs. She'll be five days into being 24 years old. No shit, man. And it changed my life. And how do you feel having seen his eyes open for the first time? Him smile for the first time? So Leo coming was a weird one. How many times have you fallen asleep with him on you? Too many times. (laughs) <laughs> like it, it's too comforting of a feeling you know and so uh, i asked you these three questions to go back to how you felt with the anxiety and to give me the pros let me give questions. you more on on that first question you asked because i didn't even actually dive into the feelings of it but um okay. so I, i'll tell you straight up like i, I was pretty like empty-headed because in these situations like this where i have all these what-ifs and my anxiety goes at some point, I just say, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, fuck it. Like, let's just get it. You know what I mean? And uh, I was just standing there, and I was just looking. There was nothing going through my brain. I was just looking straight up. Like, I probably looked like I seen a ghost that entire time once it started. You know what I mean? She was in labor for a good 13 hours, I want to say. And uh, the baby got stuck under his shoulder. Like, his shoulder got stuck. So I had to watch, like, six, seven doctors jump on top of her and, like, you know, it was like two on the sides, like one standing on the bed, pushing on her stomach. And then like, you know, a couple, like four more at the foot of the bed. You know what I mean? Like it was me and her mom in the room. So her mom was taking care of a lot of like the holding of the hand and stuff. But I was just staring, dude, just like, holy shit. You know? Uh, and by the time he came and uh, he came out, he wasn't like crying. He was just looking around, dude. He didn't cry. He didn't make a sound. They were like kind of worried about that. They put him on the table. He was chilling and he just was, you know, that he was responsive on the arms. Like it wasn't like he was like dead or dying. He was just checking out the scene. Just. 
and I'll, about? He's like, yeah, like, this is what this is about? Yeah, like, what's up? This is it? What's good, dog? And I was looking at him yeah, like, like – he basically hit you with the tie. What's good? Yeah, what's happening? And I was just like, what's good, bro? <laughs> like, and it wasn't until like – I didn't feel any like crazy emotion until I walked out of the room and John, Lewis, and Dave were over in the waiting room. Brian, let's hear it up. Not, not even yet. And I just walked out there and I looked at them and I was like, yo. And they were just like, is he here? I was like, he's fucking here, man. And they were just like, well, how do you feel? And I was like, oh, no, I don't know how I feel. <laughs> oh, here he is right here. What's up, Yeah. Shit, yo. But yeah, dude, I was literally like, holy shit, man. Like, I didn't even feel anything until they asked me how I felt. And then I just, it was like when your mom, like you're having a hard time. Your mom's like, what's wrong, Joey? And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> it was literally just that, man. Like I just, I needed someone to just ask me what was going on. And I just fucking melted, man. I just, I cried, cried, cried. And I was like, all right, guys, I got to go get back in there. I was like, <laughs> like ran back in the room, like trying to strong man it. Cause I know Stone was like super scared because, she didn't know what the fuck was going on yet. No. You know, doctors whipping her ass to get like WWE style, like to get this baby out. She's looking around. Her mom's trying to be like chill, like everything's okay, baby. Like, <laughs> <just> yeah. like <laughs> trying to be like relaxed. <laughs> like they're from fucking slam Alabama yeah. mountains. You know what I mean? So she was just like, she was trying not to freak out because she thought like something horrible was happening, you know? And, I was looking at her like, don't you fucking, don't you allude to anything going on. Like, I was, like, giving her the eyes, like, don't say a motherfucking word kind of thing. <laughs> and I came back in, like, you know, they had him in the little table. They let me, like, cut the cord. I almost cut his dick off by accident. Uh <laughs> yeah, you see that? This is going to sound TMI, but did you see that weird-ass afterbirth? Hell, yeah, I saw that shit. I watched her yes. give birth to that thing, too. I didn't even know that was happening. Bro. I see shit that people throw out in the Delaware River that looks like it's called chicken livers. People get catfish with it. Yeah. First, and, well, they it it del- and they put that little deli container. I'm like, these motherfuckers, that ain't chicken liver. I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> that was the grossest shit of all. Yeah. Time. Dude, it was, it was crazy. Like that thing hit, dude, it flew out. It splashed so hard in the pan that like her mom got like oh. blood on her. <laughs> oh, but- so wild. I had my camera on me too, so I just snapped a couple photos of him on the table and shit. And uh, I just looked at her. I was like, "Dude, you you fucking did it! Like it's over, man! Like you didn't, it, you did it, you know." And, and he yeah. got taken to the NICU because she had like a kidney infection before she had him. So we were in the hospital for two weeks before that. So we were pretty chill with all the hospital staff and shit too. So everyone was like kicking it at the end of the day, like trying to keep it all copacetic, but. He spent the first couple of days in the NICU and next day she was just up walking around, walked up to the NICU, like going to check him out, walking around like the floors. They were like ran up on her with like a chair, like you need to sit down right now, like trying to get it. But dude, it was it was genuinely the craziest rush of emotion that I've ever felt because I was happy. I was scared. I was sad. I was excited. You know, like there were so many different emotions running through my body that all I could do was cry, you know. But at the end of the day, when he opened his eyes, you know, and I held him for the first time, little bang, grabbed my fingers straight up. And I was just like, we're going to be all right. You know what I mean? Like that same mentality that I had carried my entire life where if my friends needed something, I was taking care of it. 
it just found it found its home where it was supposed to be. I feel like there are people that are meant to be fathers and meant to be caretakers. Uh-huh. And I, I feel like you can easily fall into that role. Right. In, and, uh, seeing you two, in seeing you two sit there and hang, there's a comfort in him. Like he's not anxious right now. Like uh-huh. you ever see like a little kid with their parent and they just want to get down and play like the wiggling. <laughs> there's a symbiotic relationship immediately with you two. Like, He's like, fuck it, I'm on this podcast too, Pop. Like, give me in. All right, you know? straight up. <laughs> <laughs> now, going back to it, does it alleviate all that fear? Or do you feel like you needed to have that buildup? I, I needed that. I needed that fear and I needed that buildup, you know? I, it was important. It was imperative almost, you know? Kina, you got to get out of here, girlie. Your nails are clicking and clicking. I'm sorry, I love you, but bounce. Um, I'd say like, what was the question? My bad. <laughs> no, that, that, that was the question. The question was if, if that needed struggle and then emotion oh, yeah. was needed to understand what it would feel like once it was done. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was important, man, because it, it let me under me, you know, is I could play up all these, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, you know, but at the end of the day, it's just about going over the speed bump when it comes. You know what I mean? Because it won't feel so bad afterwards. Now, how much what ifs came into your mind? Uh, dude, I couldn't even put a fucking number to it, Joe. Well, that's it. So that's <laughs> it. For me, my personal experience is I had so much bad anxiety. I was also a super young kid. Mm. The first time my daughter laid with me and fell asleep on my chest, mm. I knew, okay, this isn't the end of the world, you know? Right. So, yeah, it took me a little bit, not like a little bit, but like, you know, there are things you wrestle with in your past life that you want to still be a reality and making that big of a change in yourself could definitely uh, fuck with your mental a lot, you know, but at the end of the day, you always have your constant and that's something I didn't necessarily have my entire life, you know, yeah. it was like, yo, I could feel however the fuck I want to feel, but at the end of the day, I've got my main quest. And it's to make sure this dude has the sickest life for the rest of his life. You know, does that, does that, does that mean that you're going to alter, not so much alter business in the sense where Jesus Peace can only tour if, or nothing can only tour if, or do you, do you foster a relationship where your son grows up in this environment and sees all the sides of this? Like, how are you going to roll into, obviously it's hard to say with COVID because it's right. Of course. But do you see, you don't see yourself leaving just because you're a father now. Yeah. I, uh, what, what do you mean? Like leaving the bands or like leaving to both, you know, whether it's like, it'll be hard the first time you leave for the tour, but yeah. do you see yourself being able to balance the role of being a father and a role of with the, with the bands. Yeah. I, I see it only because I have so much confidence in storm as a mother, you know, that I would feel comfortable leaving. Because I know that there is nothing in this world that she would let happen to this kid before something happened to her. You know what I mean? If I didn't feel so confident in her abilities as a mother, I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving at all. Her, picture, her pictures with him is awesome. It's always like yeah. on the feed, you can always see it. It's, I, yeah. think it's important. I think it's important where we, where we look at like the role not having a father around can fuck with you as far as your own capabilities of being a dad. 
hundred percent. I had no idea what the, f- I had no archetype. I was like, what, what the fuck am I going to do with a kid? Like, I don't know anything about this. I couldn't tell you the first part about it. You know what I mean? But what everybody fails to mention and, and what I didn't have is my dad being like, look dog, like it just comes and then you do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, I've had this vision, like you said, of this nuclear family where, you know, everyone's having breakfast together, blah, blah, blah. Not understanding that you can have spawn and just bring them into your world as opposed to changing your entire world for them. You know what I mean? It, it took until my daughter was living with me and I was the primary caretaker of her and she was in her seventh, actually was sixth, seventh and then eighth grade and into high school. Where she was like, oh, well, I guess my dad is a guy who does concerts and I go with him. And, you know, Sonny even got her first stage dive on video and she stayed yeah. over. And it's like, but it took us such a long time because my father kind of gave me the opposite. Like, your whole life could have changed everything. You know, you're going to have to fucking. And it was like, my whole time being a dad was basically told, I can't be me because I have to be a dad. I didn't yeah. have that. I didn't have that respect to the duality of being able to have both lives capable, you know? Right. I think that that was like an old time mindset. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, now I got to go get a job and go and do this and be this like figure, like fucking household figurehead, blah, blah, blah. Like it doesn't have to be like that, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm super proud of you. And I'm yeah. envious that you were able to take that road because for me, the biggest struggle of fatherhood was trying to have both. And I didn't know how to balance it correctly. Right. Um, we're almost at the three hour mark. So I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions. And I noticed you get your hang with your son. So I don't want to take you away from this time. You're good, bro. Take your time. I actually, I'm enjoying myself. I didn't even know three hours went by quite frankly. That's when everyone says, oh, man, <laughs> sure. Anyone's going to listen. I'm like, dude, once you start getting into a conversation and, and it flows, it feels <clears throat> effortless. Right. So looking at, the things that you've done, what do you think was the most important first step that Jesus Peace took? Um, touring. <laughs> no, literally. Oh, just touring and just getting out of Philadelphia, basically. Literally, yeah. Like, I mean, when we first started, no one was trying to really take us out on tour or nothing. We kind of just had to do it on our own, take our friends out. Let's just go hit the fucking road. You know what I mean? Like, we were stuck, like you said, in like a middle place where and we were on both sides of the spectrum and uh you know a lot of people didn't necessarily want to uh be a part of that or want that for their bands or something i don't fucking know but we didn't get hit up much so we just hit the road and we understood the importance of grassroots following and and building a grassroots following and getting out there and, and pounding the road and just meeting people and talking to people and understanding that you know these are our, our people, these are our fucking people. You know what I mean? Whereas a lot of people, they, you know, go in with a different mindset. We're speaking the sermon. And I'm going to tell you, this is something that's been talked about time and time and time again on this podcast with different guests. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a band that has respect from people, you can't wait till someone helps you. You got to get out on the road. And you right. got to make your, you got to make your bones. You got to make your contacts and you got to show the world Hey, we're, we'll do this off our own back, but you know we're not you know we're not going to wait for you to carry us. And the first time I saw it outside of a festival setting was when you guys were at the stage of doing that tour that was Knock Loose Terror and you guys. Mm-hmm. That's when I'm like, okay, they arrived. 
Hardcore yeah. finally realized you need Jesus peace. Yeah. That was a, uh, that was an eye opening experience for myself as well, because for one, it was awesome that Tara agreed to do that tour. Cause I think that that also shook a lot of people's mindset a little bit. It's like, yo, if Tara can fucking put whatever ego aside and go open for knock loose. And what the fuck are we even talking about? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I loved that about that. And that's kind of why, I mean, I've never been a huge terror fan, but that's what gave me this love for the people in the band. Like Nick Jett has said maybe like 10 words to me, but I think they're cool. They're all cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I speak the world of these guys because at the end of the day, they they're above all the bullshit. Now, I always say this about the October 2014 code switching tongue score, which was like a turning point. Mm-hmm. The next turning point was that moment that you guys shared in that tour. That was a moment where hardcore came to terms with Jesus Peace and Knock Loose, and that whole world is a part of the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And I know, but I would like to hear from your perspective because you actually played some of these towns previously as just Jesus Peace tours. How cool did it feel to see the voltage kind of crowd in different cities also at a show of terror? It was awesome, dude. Because at the end of the day, those kids mosh and those kids fucking, they want to be active. So by the time terror was playing, the whole fucking room was jumping because they don't care. But like, they don't care about the Lord. They don't care about the backstory for anything. They're like, yo, this is sick. I'm getting the fuck down. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a social stance for them. So I, I always really appreciated that. And that's that was me being younger. I was like, I don't I don't give a fuck about this. I just want to go get this energy out of my body. And that's lost, man. It's a lost thing. Especially in modern hardcore, I feel. Everything is almost it's like a, a stance and you have to be this person or you have to look a certain way and shit. It's corny. That's, a, that's the role Instagram and social media plays in creating a you know this and we're gonna get into this. So now that you are a Soon to be pro Twitcher. Gamer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy, check me out. <laughs> uh, the the role that an avatar that you create for yourself and it, it produces this ability to be this person. Right. And I feel like the gaming world, like me and you talked about anime and the interest in anime would eventually just uh, pull itself into the metalcore world. I feel like gaming is a new platform where not just social media, but hardcore kids are linking up through gaming and you're yeah. in this space now, but you have to see it. It's like the Neo of the world. Like, well, you know, on this video game, I'm a killer and a maniac and I'm yeah. the best out there. But you meet the person in real life. And we said this on our podcast. It's like, the baddest big mouth in hardcore on the message boards have always been the biggest pussy. Always. And the Twitcher who's always talked the most shit has no hands in real life. Mm-hmm. What are some of the parallels? And then what are some of the contrasting points between hardcore life and gaming life for you so far? Uh, you know, so far, like even just in gaming, a lot of my friends that, that fuck with games are hardcore cats at the end of the day or like metal kids. So it's all just one and the same. It's just another like, you know, a point where we connect, uh, but just gamers, that's like one of like the worst fucking species of human ever, you know what I mean? Because you don't have this like righteous side trying to regulate all the time. So you've got a lot of people with that keyboard mentality, that keyboard warrior shit, and they're just saying it because they're an avatar. 
You know what I mean? Like you see problems with Twitch players all the time, fucking yelling nigger and like stupid shit like that. It's just kind of like, yo, like one not kicked off for that. Well, I think the one of those that big dude PewDiePie or some shit like that, like Ninja or some shit, like they all said and did shit like that. But I don't think Twitch ever did anything about it because it makes them money. You know what I mean? It just is what it is. But I don't know. I don't really subscribe to those fools. That's the cool thing. You don't have to fucking watch anybody in the gaming world and with Twitch. Like, if you want to come to my stream, come kick it. You know what I mean? Shoot the shit with me. I'm not like, don't talk to me. I'm gaming. I do it mostly to continue to connect with people who fuck with me in music than to, you know, as opposed to, you know, trying to appeal to the video game world. Like, I, I know very well that my niche is music. And if it falls into bigger things in the gaming world, that's awesome because now I'm cementing myself into something else, but also people are finding new music via the shit that I'm doing. And they probably wouldn't have found it unless it was via Twitch. You know what I mean? Do you find that the amount of time that you put into Twitch gets to a point where you're like in a whirlpool and you forget what time it is? Yeah. All the time. I mean, that's just been my whole life though. Playing video games. Like I'll sit there and play a video game for fucking 13 hours. If you let me, you know what I mean? And I won't even realize that it's happening i'll just be in because it was an escape from a world that i wasn't too happy with just as hardcore was you know i was and still if i start playing legend of zelda yeah the whole day I could it's on yeah in fact i took a blood oath with a friend to never play world of warcraft again because I had yeah a job. i was working four tens building cabinets so yeah tuesday to friday if i started gaming saturday night after a hardcore show I might have played Saturday into Sunday, sometimes Monday into Tuesday. Yeah. How the fuck do you, the fuck do you miss work on a Tuesday when you work four when you work four days a week? But right. I would miss work on Tuesday or show up two hours late because I was gaming Sunday night into Tuesday morning. Yeah, dude, it'll do it. Um, finally, do you see yourself exploring more fi- uh, more musical options beyond? <laughs> Nothing and need a piece now that you're thinking about how to balance your life, or are you going to just keep it to the two bands? Uh, no, I'm definitely thinking about it more. Uh, as you know, recently I haven't been too happy with how certain people have been treating my band as far as like uh, the back end of things go, and I've realized that that's way more common in hardcore because it seems as though people don't take these kind of bands too seriously in the music world. So everybody's effort almost gets undercut 24-7, you know? Um, and that, that really sucks, especially being a father and, you know, touring most of the time. This is my income outside of this and nothing. Like, I do these two, and I'd work at bars from time to time when I was home. But I don't know. I just, if I could put something out that is generating money, then cool, you know? And being a well-rounded musician uh and meeting a lot of people in different facets of music that are doing more it would almost be a waste for me not to try to do something at some point in my life i just don't know what the fuck it is <laughs> you know what i, I mean like i feel like the move already would have been made because with covid we've kind of gotten away from being able to physically network right but i saw the gear start spinning with you where you were like Nothing is a presentable future as far as a professional band. This is my hardcore joint. I like doing it. But like you said, the financial way to make money as a hardcore band is to forget about having a home life and tour 100 million days a year. And that's all you do. Obviously, with Leo in the picture, it's not plausible. 
Exactly. And I know that you have such a wide variety of in- influences and you got your, your main man, Lewis, out here being a DJ and a mom. He's killing it, dude. Fucking killing it. I'm wondering if just the overall look at everything that Jesus Peace done, everything that you've encountered, if you and you answered, that you've been thinking beyond just being in a hardcore. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, dude, I would fucking love to end up in something, doing music at some point. You know what I mean? Like, I love what I'm doing now, but everyone knows that hardcore bands aren't forever. You know what I mean? Like, if JP ended up being like, all right, three PLPs is enough or something, like two LPs is enough, it is what it is. It doesn't mean that I can't make music anymore. You know what I mean? So outside of that, <clears throat> in this time and space of the quarantine and being stuck at home, I've been doing nothing but teaching myself guitar, more about bass, learning about recording and engineering. Because at the end of the day, music is, this is my career, you know? And uh, I want to be as prepared for that as possible. So when the time comes for me to do something for myself and make it something that is presentable and good enough to do something with, I don't really necessarily want to have to lean on anybody else. You know what I mean? Like trying to write music with five different people is, is a goddamn headache. Everybody knows that, you know? <laughs> well i feel like because of the nature of the way that recording is going and the way that you can kind of self-publish music and the fact that you're kind of intuitive to all these things that i wouldn't be surprised if you already if you if you said hey i've got this new project but i felt like the gears were already rolling where you were looking beyond just pieces piece of nothing for what you wanted to do musically yeah i mean it definitely is i've been sitting here writing songs trying to put together eps and stuff but i just haven't figured out where i wanted to land yet so i've just been writing like ragtag songs here and there just demoing shit out just to see like man this makes me feel really fucking good (laughs) you know like man i i like to do this and if i start now by the time the other two bands fucking fizz out or if they do ever or if they don't awesome but if and when that time comes, I'll be ready to pick up the slack and get to it. You know what I mean? And I think it's good to also be exposed to more than just like, don't limit yourself that, well, I sang in this band, I played this, where it's like, right. you said from the outset, you've had a lot of different influences. And I feel like hardcore bands, unless you're willing to tour, it's never going to be the giant thing. There's a limit to how much money, even Knock Loose for as big as they are. Mm-hmm. They have touring requirements just to make sure they hit the money they need to make. Yeah. And it's a lot of stress where I think if you have other avenues, you're going to find it. Yeah. We're, you know, more money is floating around. You know what I mean? Cause at the end of the day, I don't want to be fucking beating people over the head for us to come scream and possibly fuck your venue up. Like that sucks. And a lot of the times it's promoters that are our friends and I don't want to fucking be like, yo, you need to pay us a livable wage for us to come play your shit. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like, it can't be taken advantage of. You know what I mean? No, I feel like there's going to be a balance point, especially when the things open up, where there's going to be bands that have not made money that are going to tour just because. And there's other people are going to say, hey, listen, I had to find a new find of income, and I have a job now. If yeah. you want us to play, it's either going to be completely for fun, and it is what it is, or, hey, if you want us to leave my job that I just got. Yeah. You cover my wages, yeah. Right. So you're gonna see you're gonna see some bands not tour as much, but maybe mm-hmm. still write great records and play shows and do fests. Right. You know. Um, 
I think the, this time away just gave everyone time to think shit through. You know what I mean? And it definitely did that for me. It was already feeling away because of touring with nothing and getting treated like real musicians. It's like, why the fuck isn't this happening? You know, on the other side of things. Like, we go to Europe, get treated really well. You come back to America, everyone's fucking peeing on your shoes kind of deal. You know what I mean? Europe has always, and this is something that's talked about in every podcast, Europe has always been a better platform for commercial financial success with hardcore mm-hmm. i literally did an entire podcast with richie crush and we talk about that yeah why europe has always supported the bands more mm-hmm. so for me we're gonna have you back on i know yeah let me know <laughs> like, we're gonna have you back on i knew that you and i were gonna have a conversation like this and for me i wanted to get so many things that you and i may have covered in personal conversations or mm-hmm. just briefly out there in the world um I love you, man. And I mean that in the purest sense. The person that you were at the very first to now, you have grown so much. And seeing you with your son, seeing you in this presence of mine has been a blessing. I appreciate and, that a lot. I love you too, man. Like, like I truly, I mean, this has been an amazing trajectory for you. And I look forward to see what you have coming out, be it Jesus, peace, nothing, or just looking at that young man and seeing what comes from him, you know? Yeah, this dude's already rocking too. <laughs> so, so what we're going to do um i'm going to list all your social medias your twitches and all that stuff please do but, please uh, do do a do a little sign off send some love and let's get out of here hey man i want to thank you all for having me this is aaron O'Heard from jesus peace and nothing uh keep uh i don't know <laughs> keep on doing what you're doing don't let anyone tell you otherwise uh, oh, yo, stick- one last thing just came to mind yeah hit me i've had you not been jumping up and down behind Lewis, I was watching this video of you at a party where Lewis was DJing. Yeah. I scroll through, scroll through stories without the sound one. Yeah. When I saw your face and that smile you have right there, you're jumping yeah. there. I'm like, all right, I got I to see what this dude's bopping. I didn't know. What. And then when I heard what it was, I was like, all right, Aaron's on some shit. <laughs> Yo, you know what that was, man? I knew that Lou was doing that party by the water and shit. And I was just like so cooped up. I was like, yo, I'm at least going to see this fool. But the same shit kicked in where I was like, I ain't just going to let my nigga play and not be moving if nobody's moving. So I was like, hype, man, let's go. I just grabbed him. Dude, you were, let's fucking I go. Wish I, have a video. I wish I had the video <laughs> just so people could see it. But uh, as I talked to Lewis a lot about his DJ stuff, there was yeah. just something beautiful about you behind him supporting him the whole way. Yeah, man, because at the end of the day, dude, lose like lose my brother, you know? No matter he the has, spats we've had and any of that. like love, He has a deep love for you, man. And I, that's why I wanted to put both your podcasts week, week after each other. Because seeing you support him, seeing it, it's just, it's it's great love. And it's, yeah. it's a great showing that your friends can do different things and you can support them the whole way. And right. there was nothing more the embodiment of you with this big-ass smile <laughs> in the air like, ah! <laughs> yeah man i i don't know i just i want the best for all the people that i care about you know and I may it may not be death metal and lewis drumming his goddamn legs off it, it it could be you know gabber house music i don't give a fuck man I, i'm here to show you that what you're doing is true to you and i'm here to support it you know what i mean it's uh He's the little brother, man. Straight up. Nah, man. I, I just love that video. 
Thank you for being on the show. Big shout out to Leo for being in the Leo. giving you so much inspiration. <laughs> shout outs to, out to Thorm to be in the mother that you need so you guys can grow this family to be what it is. Truly. And um we checking back in on you and uh I'll put all the social medias up and just thank you for being on the show and giving us your time. Uh, anytime, Joe. Thanks for having me. Nah, man, that's it. I really hope you enjoyed that one. For me, this is a conversation that Aaron and I could have had on the telephone. Instead, we shared it for the world, and I hope that you enjoyed his perspective and understand that Aaron and Lewis from Jesus Peace are really just two one-of-a-kind characters that are really holding down Pennsylvania and Philadelphia hardcore, each in their own individual ways, and they are setting a new standard for the future of what will be Pennsylvania and Philadelphia Hardcore, and I was elated and very excited to have people from outside the city who don't know these people well hear their personal stories and understand just how great these guys were. Also, happy early birthday to Aaron's son, Leo, who will be getting ready to celebrate his first birthday next week, and I hope that you guys tune in in the coming weeks. We release these episodes every Friday. And next Friday's guest is none other than Jeff Gunnels from Cold as Life. I know he's been featured on other podcasts. This is something that he and I had to record across two separate uh, interactions because of his workload. The conversation was amazing. Jeff is a friend of mine for over 20 years, and it was really probably one of my favorite conversations because this is someone who I have not heard his voice since... 2007 except for listening to the other podcast he was one obviously and it was great to reconnect with my friend and i hope that you guys enjoy our conversation check us out tihcpodcast.com and all the, all the usual apps take care <laughs>